Welcome to the Evolve Move Play podcast. I'm your host, Rafe Kelly. At Evolve Move Play, our aim is to help you cultivate a more meaningful life and a more heroic self by reconnecting deeply to movement, mindfulness, nature, and community practices. This podcast was created to bring the best and brightest minds in all of these subjects together to better understand how we can create an empowering and sustainable ecology of practices for personal growth. If you're interested in being part of this ongoing conversation, the best way you can support us and get involved is by joining our Podcast Plus membership. By joining, you will get backstage access to our live podcast airing once a month, as well as a private question and answer session with me and our guests after the show. On top of that, you'll get access to our thriving online community where you can continue these deeper discussions with people all over the world who are just as passionate and curious about these topics as you. More details about the membership as well as the link to get signed up are in the description below. And whether you can join, be sure to like, share, subscribe, and hit that bell icon so you can be notified every Monday when our episodes drop. Thanks so much for your support, and we hope you enjoy the show. Hello. Welcome, everybody. Um, welcome, John. Uh, it's always amazing to have you on. Yeah. Have the pleasure of having a conversation with you. Love um, it. I hope everyone who, who watches our channel at this point is familiar with you. We've only had you on about a half a dozen times. So <laughs> one would think they'd be familiar, but if, it, if, it, if anyone isn't, John is um, the director of cognitive science and a full professor now, right? Oh, no, uh, not a full professor, associate assistant professor. Associate professor. No. Okay. Associate professor. Associate professor. I, I get these. I have tenure. confused. Yeah. You have tenure. At the University of Toronto, he is the author of a book called Zombies in Western Culture, co-author of that, and um, also the uh, the author of a YouTube series called Awakening from the Meaning Crisis, which has been hugely influential to many people who pay attention to a lot of things we like to pay attention to. I was just re-watching Elements of This Morning, and they were absolutely amazing. Um, anything else people should know about you, John, before we get started? Um, let me see. Um, I've got other series on there uh, that are out there that I, I'd, I'd like to plug. Uh, there's Untangling the World Knot, which is about consciousness. There's The Elusive Eye, which is about the self. Um, there's Towards a Metapsychology that is True to Transformation, which is about human development. These are all done with other people in a dialogical format, uh, where I'm trying to exemplify the integration of theoretical argumentation and collaborative dialogue um, as a way of developing a, a, and um, affording uh, ideas and, uh, and building knowledge of, of, if that's not too grandiose. Um, so yeah, there's lots out there to take a look at. Yeah, absolutely. You've put out an incredible body of work since you really started becoming a, a major YouTuber. It's, it's hard to keep up with, but it's been incredibly informational and, and just deep and of course, having had a chance to, to speak with you so often has been uh, immensely influential for me. So thank you. Well, I, you know, <clears throat> I, I owe a lot to you. You're often my exemplary case of the emergent ecologies of practices that are directed towards alleviating the meaning crisis. So it's always a, a great honor to talk to you too. Excellent. Excellent. So today we wanted to really take on a specific theme, which is the idea of how mindfulness practices can help us better capture the insight generation and cultivation and skill transfer that we're looking for from our physical practices. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. we treat that as a bit of a, uh, uh, an axiom in our method. It's a priori, right? That, that, that this transfer is possible. 
But I think we should dig a little bit deeper into that question before we we start kind of getting into the nuts and bolts of, of, of how we go forward with it. So the first thing I wanted to ask you as a cognitive scientist is what, what do you understand about the research of how we actually see skill transfer between different domains? Um, yeah. Yeah. Well, so this is something, this is more of a question than an answer for me, um, which is why I appreciate having this discussion. Um, this goes back to, I, I've, I've told this story before, I think I've even told it to you about, uh, you know, I was, I was doing Tai Chi Chuan, I'd been doing it for like two or three years, I was doing it very religiously, in multiple meanings of that word. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was having all these flow experiences and amazing phenomenological things and all this. But it was when other people came up to me um, and said, we've noticed a change in you, you're more balanced in how you're talking to people, you're more flexible in your thinking, that I realized that the Tai Chi Chuan was bleeding into my life in ways I, I wasn't uh, noticing, but other people were noticing, and that had a huge impact on me. And then I compare that to, um, and I've had discussions with students, uh, my students at the university, about people who get in, for example, into the flow state in certain video games, and it clearly doesn't transfer to their life. In fact, it, it, it does the opposite. Mm -hmm. They get a, a, the flow state within, and I'm not claiming all video games do this, I'm not, yeah. but I'm saying the experience of some people with some video games, they get into the flow state, they get addicted, right? The, the WHO talks about this. They get locked into that world and they get locked in in an addictive way precisely because it doesn't transfer to their life in general. And then this, and then if those are sort of poles, the other thing that's intriguing me is, you know, I think this, this relates to all kinds of um, enacted serious play. Um, one, one critique one could make of some of the traditional, traditional world religions is that people are rejecting them not because of belief issues. I'm not saying that's not a case, but by and large, when you take a look at this, um, these people are rejecting the religions because of belonging issues. And I think what that translates into is not only the sense of being at home in the temple or the church, but also that what's going on in, that, in those places doesn't transfer to their life in a viable way. So this issue of transfer, um, I think, um, is paramount uh, to the cultivation of wisdom and meaning. So this is, and, and, and so there's, there's variations, there's lack of transfer, there's profound transfer. And then you can also get, you can get um, interference, which is negative transfer. Uh, you know, you're trying to learn Wing Chun and the Tai Chi strike keeps getting in the way. Yeah, and yeah. we're all familiar with that. And that's one of the advantages of MMAs. It helps you to break out of that and get to a higher order of sort of data compression going on. So those three things um, are, are, are all apparently like very well recognized in, in the literature, but there's not a lot on this specific issue. There's a general issue of what's called transfer appropriate processing and memory. Like, how do I process now in a way that's procedurally and perspectively and even participatorily similar enough to where I'm going to use it, that it will transfer? All of this is being talked about, but this, this sort of focused question of, well, what's the difference between good transfer, no transfer, and bad transfer? Like, what that is not, I'm not aware of any good, re now, yeah. I, I could be wrong, but I'm ignorant of any research that's specifically directed at trying to answer that question, but it's a question that I think is really 
important and fundamental right now. Asking the question, those sort of three interlocking questions. What drives good transfer? What, why, what, what is happening with bad transfer? And what's happening with no transfer? Yeah. I recently had a conversation with uh, Rob Gray, who um, I think he's the director of experimental psychology at ASU. Um, yeah. And he, he works in the sort of ecological dynamics uh, perspective. Um, I really like to get you guys in, in dialogue as well. I think that'd be really I would like that. I would like but, that. You know, we talked about uh, an idea that's been that's being promoted in the ecological dynamics world of parkour specifically as a donor sport. But it's um, it's more broadly, you know, there's there, there, that idea of a donor sport is a is a broader concept. But they're specifically talking about how parkour might actually improve soccer playing, as an example. Yeah. And this comes out of Keith David's lab. So we know that there is like from a from a kind of an experiential side like i have seen as a coach athletes who take adaptations from one sport and show up and are and have some sort of virtuosity from that in yes. in another sport i've also seen athletes who really struggle and we sometimes it's the same athletes right mm -hmm. so if you take a gymnast into parkour he will he or she will will learn a lot of acrobatics more easily than, than, a, than, a, than you know, a general person. But one thing you might struggle to teach them is how to do a shoulder roll correctly because they've done so many reps and they've been really conditioned about the, there's this, it's almost like a frame problem for uh, gymnastics athletes. The frame that they've accepted intuitively almost without realizing it is that proper movement is always sagittal or frontal and it's never you know or or transverse but it's never mixed you never go diagonally around something mm -hmm. and so it can be really really hard to break them of the habit of tucking their head and looking at their belly when they're trying to do a roll right, right. I've, I've seen you know if you have somebody who comes from basketball over to to uh to parkour like they're going to be really good at jumping up and grabbing stuff Right. They'll, they're going to know how to organize themselves to do that. That's a very, I mean, there's almost a one-to-one -one coupling there, right? As, aside from like the visual perception of what you're jumping at. Um, athletes who come from Taekwondo spin really well, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so we, we see that there's this, this transfer of training. One of, the, one of the assumptions we tend to make is that an athlete who's good at one thing is going to just be good at other things. And that's not the case. Oh. And um Rob likes to talk about this famous case, and, and I've talked about this as well, but uh, Jenny Finch, who is the world's best soft pitch or uh, uh, fast pitch softball player uh, or pitcher for a while, she was pitching, I think, like about 73, 74 miles per hour. So about 20 miles per hour less than like a standard major league baseball fastball. Um, and she went around and challenged a bunch of major league hitters to hit her, and they get three chances to hit her, and nobody could touch the ball. They couldn't even get there the the bat on the ball albert pujols barry bonds didn't matter right. um and so this is an example where like you we'd expect an almost direct one-to-one -one transfer and then we find at least at the first iteration there appears to be no transfer mm -hmm. now i've thought about this a lot and what i've experienced is that oftentimes if i go to a sport that's somewhat similar to my sport but different uh, 
there's some movements that I can get right away, but there, once we get into more complex and specific movements, there's not a direct transfer on the first attempt. Like my first attempt is just as awkward and, mm-hmm. and uncomfortable as the next guy's first attempt. But my mm-hmm. fifth and 10th attempts are substantially better because my brain can start to recognize things that it can donate from previous experiences. Yes, yes, yep. So that's, and then, oh, well, I, I could go on, um, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna shift the ball back into your court. Um, so why might we think of mindfulness as something that could actually improve our general ability to yeah. in, improve transfer between, I mean, we can look at, like, I think there's, I think people, to me, there's a, there's a much deeper connection between like, can a base, can baseball make you better at softball and can baseball make you better at life? Yeah. You're just talking about sort of orders of domains, right? Or you're talking about domains and higher orders of the domains are within. So if we, if we understand to some degree, how it happens at that very local level, I think we can start generating up scaffolding up insight that could help us control, help us understand how to access it at the higher level. Yeah. Like you said, with Tai Chi, you experienced a, a change in how you oriented in relationship to other people. And I, I was talking to my wife actually this morning about this. She has just picked up rock climbing again for the mm. first time in, um, you know, in, in several years. And she's finding it really rewarding. And she's literally noticing that her ability to access her breath and calm herself down, that she is, that she's picking up in her rock climbing is she'll, she'll have this sense of like a a problem arrives at work and, and a ghost of that experience will kind of pop into her head and remind her that she can, she can do better problem formulation if she calms herself down. That, that's exactly right. Um, well, two, two things. Um, first, we have to understand that this is not just at the at sort of the direct movement level. Uh, mm-hmm. Sternberg famously did the example with bridge masters, uh, people who are expert in bridge, and when they play with novices, they crush them, as yeah. well, of course. And then he slightly changed the game, uh, slightly changed all the rules, taught both sides, and invented a new game called Schmidge, and now the novices crush the experts. Um, yeah. So, like, even in something as abstract and almost purely symbolic cards, right, the, you get the same issue. And so that points to something that um, I think we're we're moving towards, which is, and this is tricky. Um, so, we're, we we want to try and get um, the most domain general processes. Um, these are the ones that are going to be presupposed in any domain, and therefore, by improving them, they have the greatest chance of um, of transfer. Um, but we don't want these processes to be so simple that the transfer will only be simplistic, if I can put it that way. Mm-hmm. And so the trick is to get kind of a dynamic of grounding processes. And so one of the things that you get in a mindfulness practice is hopefully you tap into the dynamics of attention and you learn how to improve, optimize the dynamics of attention 
Um, so you get something that's domain general. You're paying attention well, just is good almost wherever you're trying to do anything. Uh, but it's not it's not a simplistic set of things like you know focus my eyes or something like that. It's a much more complex system so that when I get when I can transfer this general skill, it gives me you know a dynamic scaffold to get me going in, in the new domain. I don't know if that's making any sense, but what I'm saying is you you want to you want to get down to something that is shared by many uh, many many domains. But you don't want to get down to something that's so basic that it's not going to offer you much to build work with once you get there. Look, opening my eyes, really important, no matter what I'm trying to do. There you go. Practice opening your eyes. Okay. Now, we, we, yeah. we get it. That's general, but it's too simple. Do you see what, what I'm trying to get at? Mm -hmm. You want to get down to the general, but the general has enough meat in it. And if I can, uh, maybe that's offending vegetarians. It has enough, it has enough uh, Body constant to structure yeah. to it that it will like it, it can give us momentum in the domain there's a dynamic there that we can tap into when we get to new, new domain now i think mindfulness properly practiced and you know i have criticisms a yeah. lot of the way the west has misappropriated mindfulness trains us in the dynamics of attention attention is needed everywhere but if we improve the dynamics we're going to get a machine that's already complex and running and they could give us some momentum wherever we go into a new domain so i think that's why mindfulness is very very important there are other things that are like that uh but mindfulness is is importantly one of them i would say yeah so i wanted to i guess there was a couple ideas that i heard in there that i wanted to 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 echo back and amplify one is this idea of um how do we attune really attention to higher order control and not just to, it's attention's a almost an incomplete way of thinking about it it's kind of like um i, I want to come back to that because i feel like there's something missing in framing it as attention but the franz bosch is one of my favorite thinkers in the kind of dynamical systems approach to motor control he talks about this idea that you want to have high variability in training, and this is really congruent, obviously, with the evolving play method, because what it does is expose you to a sufficient set of problems that you start to, you can, um, that you get a, a better search space for the type of motor control strategies that apply in many situations. Exactly. So. Yeah, go ahead. I, yeah. So well, you, you can imagine that like that um you know throwing a punch has has maybe 10 factors that you're that you start to tune into that allow you to be successful yeah. and then throwing a, a baseball also has 10 factors that allow you to be successful and then it turns out that three of those factors are shared by both yeah and the athlete who's done both now has the ability to prioritize those three factors which yes. allows them to um to better distribute their attention and to then notice that thing in the next related um, activity that they're in. So the more, the more variable your training in some sense is, um, though there's, I'm sure there's also, uh, there's a point where that doesn't work either. You have to have a balance, right? But there's, a, there's an optimal level of variation that allows you to extract higher order principles. 
right? So you need, and, and, and this is exactly where I wanted to go in the next move. Yeah. So you actually facilitated it. So first of all, I'm going to make a distinction that's becoming important in the philosophy of biology between the evolution of a trait and yeah. the evolution of evolvability. Yep. So one way you can win competition is you evolve a particular set of a suite of traits. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that's, you know, that's a viable strategy in evolution, but another strategy organisms can adopt, I'm sorry, this makes it sound like they're consciously choosing and that's all wrong, but that's the way the language is forcing me to talk, right? Is, right, that you can actually, you can evolve your evolvability, you can evolve your ability to evolve. Yeah. Right? And so I think what you're, what, what you're, 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 you're ha- you've got half of the engine, you want to, right, you want to increase your variation but you want to get a, a, a very generalizable, but again, not, not necessarily simplistic principle of selection as well. Because mm-hmm. the, the, the problem you can get is things can overlap in a way that's useless, mm-hmm. right? Right. That can, well, these, these overlap. And I like, like there's many ways. So if we think about these as very complex structures, there's many ways in which they have the potential to overlap. And so we have the variation Right, but it right, but we also want to make sure that the selective principles we're putting on it are are going to be um, very powerful uh, and highly generalizable. Um, this is, of course, how evolution works, right? And so, you want to get a variation, but you also want to make sure you're very careful in selecting your principles of so, your principle of selection, um, and what is it going to be, um, because that's going to, right, that's going to affect uh, what emerges. But what you can do, right, and, and this is this is where it gets, this is, this is like the Karst thing of moving from the finite to the infinite game, is you can, you can start to say, ah, but I can adopt the meta strategy of trying different virtual engines. So I'm not just going to be evolving traits, putting them into competition. I'm going to have this selection and this variation, this selection and this, this you know what I'm saying? And then I do a bigger selection. I do a virtual engine of virtual engineering uh, kind of thing. Um, and um, the model I have for something like that is philosophy as a practice, right? So what you do is you're, you, you're like, you're in epistemology and you're doing this, you're in metaphysics and you're doing this, right? And you're in ethics and you're doing this, but you're also putting all of those into a huge uh, selection and variation machine. So you do very like, here's the different theories in ethics and here's the selection, which is going to lead to the best life. Here's the best, right? Here's all the, uh, here's the variation ontology. What's the best account of reality. And here's the selection we're going to put on it. You know, good argumentation, good evidence. Here's, you know, the best and so on and so on. But then you, what you can do is you can step out and say, but what is it to do that well in each one of those? What is it like to do philosophy in each one? Does that working as an analogy for you? I think so. I want to like, for me, I'm comfortable in the grounds of sort of biology and like motor control and, 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 and movement skills. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to kind of, to scaffold up from that. So yeah. what, what occurred to me when you talked about evolving evolvability is actually that I believe that there's, there, there's been research that shows that there's something specific about dogs relative to cats in particular that allows them to shift their morphology faster under selection. It has something to do with solving the robustness paradox. And the, what it's talked about is a, a, what's called, I don't like this term, it's called degeneracy. So what you yeah. want, <laughs> yeah. you want a lot of overlapping redundancy in your genotype, 
yeah. that doesn't usually re result in specific important differences in your in your phenotype. Mm -hmm. But if the environment changes, it gives you the reserve there that you can then focus focus on. So you can get the phenotypical variation that you need. You don't want lots of phenotypical variation all the time because you'll die. Yeah. Right. That's the robustness paradox. So you, you want to be get you want to get a lot of variation genotypically with and the way you do that is have a lot of overlapping redundancy. You don't have you don't have complete homogeneity. And you don't have complete segregation. And this is relevant to what we're talking about yeah, right yeah, now. Absolutely. Um, so. Yeah, we're going to come back to degeneracy because that was a big part of my conversation with uh, with Rob Gray as well. Yeah. And it's very important to understand. But so just to, to ground it for the audience, right? Like, you know that there are an immense variety of dog breeds, right? Yeah. Um, and that they range in size from teacup poodles, who are a couple pounds to, you know, Kangles, which are, you know, can be up to 200 pounds, right? Irish wolfhounds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah 36 inches of the shoulder heads that are huge and wide and thick and short and popped out and all these things and now there's a lot more variations of cat breeds than there used to be and and part of this also has to do with the functional way in which we've used dogs versus how we've used cats we've we've selected dogs for a much broader variety of functions and the more we time we've had we've had we've been selecting on them along yeah yeah but even if you look at their wild analogs um wolves and dogs seem to be a particularly plastic species, right? Yes. yes. Uh, the, the variation among uh, the, the wild cats that are closely related to, to the cats that we own are, they're pretty similar from yeah. one place to another, but the largest subspecies of wolves are, you know, 130 pounds, maybe um, the, the smallest subspecies of wolves are like 35 pounds. Yeah. Yep. They, yep. they vary immensely in the size of their heads, right. And how yep. robust their head are. And if we go back, like the, 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 the evolutionary biology of canids is really fascinating. Like it used to be that we thought the gray wolf was the direct ancestor of the dog. Um, but what it looks more like now is that there was a lot of closely related species of wolf-like canids that existed that kind of collapsed at the end of the last ice age or uh, around that period. Or, and some of those lineages coalesced into what became wolves. And one of those lineages became dogs. Yeah. yeah. Um, but like coyotes and wolves are only separated according to the most recent research by about 50,000 years of evolution. Yep. Which is, you know, they've, they've, they've differentiated in niches and Very overlap nice. each other and, you know, can yeah. be sympatric and not interbreed. Um, and that, that happened kind of in an evolutionary eye blink. Yep. Yep. So there's, there's something about that. So, so the canid genome seems to maybe have evolved with a greater degree of this, this idea of gen degeneracy. And so let's talk about that because that's, we, they use the same term in ecological dynamics in, refer in reference to motor skills, right? A, be a better athlete has higher motor degeneracy, which means that they're, that they have more redundant strategies to achieve the same effect. Well, well they get, they get an optimal balance between redundancy and differentiation. That's yeah. what degeneracy is trying to get at. Okay. And, and, and you're right. I think this linkage is good. And what you're pointing to, by the way, is that the dogs are sort of higher in evolvability than cats. Exactly. Long-term, the dogs are going to win. Um, 
uh, given the variation in the environment. Um, so yeah, and that's exactly the that's exactly what I, I wanted to get at. I was trying to do that with yeah, yeah. the philosophical example, but I get it. You're right. It's too, that's too highfalutin. Yeah. So um, although I I, I think I, it's, I think it's beautiful to to connect it, but I think that you know yep. no no by giving it a specific by by being able to to reframe it in my frame, I think it helps the students. I think it, it it's useful to hear your frame as well. Well, and what I would hope for is ultimately uh, a degeneracy between yeah uh, exactly. The, the philosophy and and the movement, um, the, the gymnasium and the and the academy are right beside each other, right? Um, they they are the same, right? Originally, the academy was an, was a gymnasia. Yeah, exactly, and, exactly. And the dialogues start there. Yes. So yeah, so that's what I was trying to get at. I was trying to get at right. You you want basically that that overlap. Uh, the problem is we don't think of the overlap just as a line. Right, uh, which we're tempted to do, but you have to think about it sort of as a multi-dimensional overlap. Mm -hmm. So, like things can things are overlapping in multiple dimensions. Um, yeah, you want you want to get this, you, and, and you get this at the functional level. Uh, the work that Kelso's done on what's called metastability, which is which is brain states that um, are in sort of in parallel, doing integration and segregation, and that has a lot to do with relevance yeah. realization. So, if you got at sort of at the at the firing level, you want um, you, you, you want to get into this meta you want to get you want to get meta stability um which is different than what's often thought about people trying to get stability um like this is get into the this uh, this sort of structure of skills and then stay there you want meta stability and but yeah you want you want a degeneracy see i don't like the term because people are hearing this and they're thinking yeah, of yeah. things running I, uh, I think turvy has uh, has um i think it's turvy who's Propose that in motor control, it'd be referred to as abundance. It's motor abundance, but it's yeah. generally in the literature referred to as motor degeneracy, which just sounds like getting worse at movement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For example, and that's what it sounds. And it, when 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 you when you encounter it in biology, people of course get Spencerian ideas of evolution or yeah. well, yeah. degeneracy. They're becoming degenerate. What? But the yeah, the, yeah. the idea is the way I, I like to think about it is it, it solves the robustness paradox. The robustness paradox is the species needs variation yeah, in order yeah. to evolve, but the individual doesn't want to be one of the variants because it's like, it's most liable to die off. So mm -hmm. how do you get the best balance within organisms? Right. And the idea is, as we said, you, you want this degeneracy in the genotype. And so it's, it's not just the, it, there's sort of three prongs to the definition you want uh, this optimal balance between um, overlap and, and differentiation, but there's also the relationship to the world, which means most of the time it's not expressing uh, a wide variation in behavior because mm -hmm. because that's dangerous, right? Yeah. Uh, and so what, what it needs to do is, but what it, what it gives you is it gives you this reserve that you can activate when needed in, in, to produce variation on demand, kind of like print on demand, you can produce variation on demand. Does that is that making sense? It, it does. I if I wanted to go, uh, let's go back a step because there's something I wanted to get at because I think you touched on it and I think it's important. You were talking about the idea; it, it's not enough to have variation, no. right? Because it, essentially, variation uh, in is if you are if you're trying to become a more skillful, more wise, more virtuous human being just doing a bunch of stuff isn't going to get you there. Yeah, you'll be a dilettante. 
Yeah. And, and it's, it's, so it's, and it's the same thing. Like if you're, if you want to become a skillful mover of any kind, uh, if you want to be a skillful basketball player, just trying out as many different types of shots as possible will not work. That's right. Right. So, so there's a, so what, if you, if we use the analogy of evolution again, which I think is beautiful, we're missing the selection aspect. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. So, so, so mutation provides variation for the evolutionary grist along with sexual, uh, sexual reproduction. Right. Um, and then selection is what, what attunes that variation to the specific environmental constraints. Exactly. So essentially what competition in sport is, is a kind of selection criteria, mm-hmm. right. Mm-hmm. Uh, or application, you know, what you're doing is you have now, you have an, ext- an extinction criteria. This, oh, yeah, very good. Yeah, this, this, this act, this approach, this thing doesn't work. And like within motor control, like bearing kind of looking at a motor control, there's two forms of variation. There's variation that supports performance and variation that moves us away from performance. Right. So negative and positive variation. So as we grow as movement, as movers, what we're looking for is to harvest all of the positive variation possible while eliminating the negative variation. So if we were to, to, you know, change the, the constraints of a basketball game such that you couldn't miss a shot, then we wouldn't get any information about the difference between the positive and, and, and negative variation. On the, on the flip side, if we change the constraints um, to make them too difficult, we also don't get any information. That's because right. every fail, uh, strategy fails, even strategies that might, uh, m- might be more effective, right? Their marginal more effectiveness isn't clear when the landscape is, is too difficult. There's actually one of the things that I, uh, I think we, <laughs> we have a problem with right now, which is the landscape is changing so fast that it's making it harder and harder for us to be aware of the strategies that are actually long-term successful. Yes. But um, that's, a, that's a kind of, <laughs> we're jumping orders of magnitude or, or we're jumping you know, levels of analysis from from motor control to what's the problem in the meta crisis. Um, so maybe let's not go all the way deep into the meta crisis. Oh, I, I, at um, one point, I do want to go there because that is, again, okay. the connection between the philosophical level yeah. and the embodied level. Um, okay. Because I, I want to pose a problem, mm-hmm. uh, which is, I, I agree. I, th- I thought what you just did there was brilliant. You, you know, we use, we use competition as the selection. Yeah. Um, but I want to be able to, uh, you know, to have other people happen, what happened to me and what happened to Beth, right? Mm-hmm. I, I want that, that kind of transfer as well. And, and right. It, no, yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm getting it and I have something I want to say, but I want to let you keep going for a second. Well, Don't all you... I want to say is, again, I, I, I want to move from the finite game to the infinite game. I want to, I want to yes. be able to be yes. like the Wisconsin sorting task. I want to be able to shuffle the selection criteria as well so mm-hmm. that, Right, I, I, I can improve um, the kinds of transfer because that again is going to make me more evolvable rather than just driving specific uh, traits that have been evolved. Yeah. So the problem with so 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 let's say we've, we've identified that we that we need to explore variation while having selection criteria. 
right? Right. And this is, again, this is, this is, you could say this is how you become a better mover, but this is also how you become a better thinker because you've talked a lot about how we have to have a balance between active open-mindedness and critical thinking. Exactly, exactly, yeah. Active open-mindedness is intentionally exposing yourself to things that are outside of the way that you would normally think about something. And critical thinking is being able to apply some kind of exclusion criteria so that you can sort through what's actually useful of that and what's not. Or as Bruce Lee would say, you know, Absorb what is useful, reject what is useless, add what's uniquely your own, right? Like, there's many ways of, of pointing to this, this, this thing. So, but once we impose the selection criteria, the problem is that we can be pointing at the wrong, the wrong problem Zeno. formulation. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So, um, if, if you're, like, and we see this in martial arts, right? Like martial arts is a beautiful kind of exemplar of this. So we have martial arts that have no extinction criteria. So they don't have any form of a live selection. Yeah. And what we see over time, and you can track this, is they become more aesthetic and formal and flourishy, right? And yeah. less functional. So if you look at stances in karate, in, in form and in karate forms and kata from, you know, 1912, right? You'll see that they look much more like the type of stances that you actually see people use in MMA than the types of things that show up in kata now. And you can yes. see that it's slowly evolved to a deeper, longer, you know, more exaggerated stance. It's actually, we can even go back to dogs, right? So if you, if you use a dog to hunt pigs, you'll discover that you want a dog with a big, heavy, thick head, right? Yeah. That gives massive power and biting and stopping force. Right. If you take away the selection criteria of actually breeding such a dog, people start thinking bigger heads, bigger heads, bigger heads is better, right? And maybe yep. a shorter yep. jaw. Yep. And all of a sudden you have dogs who are deeply unhealthy. You can't fulfill function at all. Yes. Yes. Good right? analogy. Because, yeah. Good. So, so, okay. So we have, so we have that problem, but then the other problem is that let's say that your, your goal is your goal. The, the, the original purpose of the, of the, of the dog is pig hunting. The original purpose of karate is self-defense. Yeah. Now you don't have enough. You're not getting enough exposure to it, right? Maybe there's no pigs in your area. So you do schutzend, you do bite yeah. sport, but it turns out that actually the characteristics to make a successful schutzend dog are not that related to the characteristics that make them a good boar hunting dog. Yep. So yep. Olympic Taekwondo actually selects for learning how not to hit someone hard, uh, which is a very bad habit to have as a fighter. You can, you can, you can, you can take things that you've learned in Olympic Taekwondo and you can donate them to an effective martial art, but it requires a lot of of unlearning as well. So, so we have the problem of no selection, and then we have the problem of inappropriate selection. Yes. And, 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 and then the issue with martial arts is that violence is such a vast and um, it's, it's impossible for anyone to have, and it, it's also so high cost, right? It's one of those, it's one of those things in which you yeah. enter it to enter into the arena in which you're going to get the most valid feedback is to rapidly just extinctify yourself. 
Yeah. And, right? and, it, and you could also get into the problem we talked about being, you know, phenotypically uh, in, inappropriate. Yeah. Right. Um, like, let, let, let me, let me just briefly say like, if the, if the, if the driving reason why I did Tai Chi Chuan was self-defense, I'm a fool. Because the number of time I've had to actually defend myself is very small in number. Yeah. It might grow given the way things yeah. are going. I don't know. <laughs> the point is, right, um, if that was the, my reason, then I've wasted a, a huge amount of time and a yeah. lot of learning space, right? And so uh, while it's important to know the self-defense function, because you can't correct the form unless you know what the intended function is, I'm, I was always pursuing it for something else. Yes. I was always pursuing it uh, according to different selection criteria. Mm-hmm. Um, and part of that was implicit and then, and, and then explicated by that experience I related to you. Mm-hmm. And then part of it, it was, you know, a reflective choice. I was looking for Socrates in the academy and it wasn't there. And I started looking for Socrates by taking up Tai Chi Chuan and, and mindfulness uh, practice. Um, and here's not, not to be self-promotional, but I, yeah. but but I think that's how we, we we should be doing for people in general, right? I think one of the problems with a lot of the martial arts, uh, although there are people like Rachel Hayden who are trying to move away from this, is is the hyper focus on self defense. That is an important skill. I'm not denying that. But for many people, if that's all they're getting out of it, they're and I mean this very carefully. They're wasting their time, right? Yeah. Because because like. Like, like some people, oh, imagine being a, a Kung Fu master. And I'm saying, but if I'm a Kung Fu master and I've taken all that time to do this and I might fight three times in my life and all that space could have gone towards making me a more virtuous, uh, more caring person, a person more capable of being rash. Mm, have I made a good decision overall, right? I'm, I, I'm not trying to do special pleading. I'm trying to say like, we, I, I think that's what I was trying to do with the virtual engine on the virtual engines. We need something higher in which a higher arena in which we're playing around with the selection criteria. That's what I was trying to put mm-hmm. my finger yeah. on. I mean, that's absolutely what, like what I think of evolving play as like, that's the exactly, the point. We exactly. Have, we have, we're trying to orient towards the, the kind of the highest order self-cultivation that we can, yes. but we want to do it in a way that, that, that respects like that, that the self-defense thing is actually, um, <laughs> It's like maybe the wrong religion, <laughs> but it's a powerful tool. Yeah, yeah. And if yeah, you, and yeah. if you, you know, the thing I have a lot, you know, with a lot of like Tai Chi is like people think that they learned to fight and they didn't. And it's like, you have to, we need to be more realistic about what it is, but also it's like the way that I see it is that there's a, there's a type of lesson you can only learn through that type of selection that goes into the real fighting, right? Yes, yes. Um, yes. And, and so it, it's like the grounds for potential self-cultivation are stronger in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu than they are for me in like Aikido or Tai Chi. But then a lot of times it's not utilized. It's like the, the higher order is then not recognized because that's, the lower order- That's excellent. Attention. That was good. I'm not that yeah. you haven't said good things up to now. That was yeah, yeah. A, 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 an indirect insult. You know, that was good what you just did, right? The, the, there's- it's almost like there. It's almost like there's a, a there's a there's some sort of weird attractor there. 
the, the, the things that have the greater uh, c- capacity for, let's call it character cultivation, just to put a yeah. name on it for now, right, are also the ones that tend to be tempted to be, you know, you know what I call the kick and punch schools, right? Where yeah. uh, you're really good at kicking and punching, and you can you can fight your way, you can d- defend yourself against two unarmed opponents, and it's like, yeah, great. Are you a good person, right? Yeah. Are, are yeah. you a good person? Kind of human first. So yeah. So we once you so it's like when we t- we need a lower order selection criteria that's meaningful in order yeah. to start to be able to see and scaffold up from that. Yeah. And when we miss that we very easily start going into these self-delusional things. Yes, um, yes, yes. But what's revealed at that lower order, it, it can be sufficiently fascinating to keep you there without actually delivering the changes that are most relevant. Um, like, I always think about this in reference to, you know, in reference to self-defense, it's like, I've been to these self-defense you know, like all these guys who are really serious about self-defense, they're training for violence. They think about violence. They talk about violence all the time and they're overweight and they walk outside in their army fatigues and smoke cigarettes on their breaks between training self-defense. Yes. yes. It's like, okay, well, what is more likely that you will be assaulted and killed or that you will die of, of cancer? Exactly. Right? I always tell people the most important self-defense, um, the most def- uh, important self-defense thing you can train yourself in is not texting and driving and not drinking and driving. Well, let me, let me pick up on that and say yeah. one thing. Look at the statistics of violence. Where yeah. are you, who is most likely to assault you? Family and friends in an informal situation. Parties. Yeah. Christmas parties are very dangerous places. <laughs> oh, no. Statistically. Yeah, yeah, no, I get it. Yeah, I get it. It's, it's just really dangerous, right? And, and, and so, like, what I... The, the skills that would manage me in that situation so it doesn't ever get to violence are really going to be better for my longevity than ha- mm-hmm. like, what if you're jumped from behind on the street? Well, yeah, I get that. But, you know, what's much more likely that a, tr- a loved family member will kill me in a moment of emotional trauma and rage. Yeah. Right. And, and so dealing with that is actually, you know, again, in, in the broader picture, a better kind of self-defense. Right. Like if you pay attention to the typical arenas of violence, you say like chances are like and I I know somebody personally like great martial artist. Right. But, you know, because of a family connection, he couldn't defend himself against violence, not because he didn't have the skill. Mm -hmm. He could have devastated the other person, but because there was a familial relation, he was subject to abuse. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I've seen this. Um, it's interesting. We're, we're, we're actually playing a lot with the idea that, you know, Jordan Peterson has talked about with the, the game and the metagame. Very much. I've always told Jordan, I've told yeah. him in person yeah. that this is one of his best arguments. Yes. The game and the metagame. So, but the, what I see in the martial arts in particular is that the people who focus on the metagame they delude themselves into the nature of the game that they're playing at the local level. I don't deny that. I'm not, none of what yeah. I'm saying denies yeah, no. that. There's, there's not, too much woo. There's too much. Yeah, tai Chi yeah. is particularly guilty of this. Yeah, yeah, I admit that. I admit this. I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not trying to like trap you on that. I'm just trying to, yeah. to to say, well, how do we understand that? Like, it, it may be a kind of domain specific thing to martial arts in some way, um, because of the nature of the thing that they're trying to train is so is actually so difficult to get at in a, in a realistic way that's also sustainable. 
Yeah. Um, and so the, uh, the search space for optimizing that training is, is really difficult. And so it's easy for people to get kind of like adopt these delusional things, but I think it may be a, a but it is a broader problem that we're talking about, which is how do we, how do I, how do we move from, you know, what we're really talking about is how do we move from kind of lower order um, optimization towards higher order optimization. And yeah. in some sense, what part of what you have to do is, is attend to the lower order. Yes. Right. And you, you've talked about this. We have to be bottom up and top down. So yes. like yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, to, to invoke Peterson, again, one of the things that he talks about is like, if you want to have a romantic relationship with your spouse, one of the best things you can do is get really good at handling the mundane parts of your relationship because they're like 80% of your relationship. So if you, totally. if you, um, if you can just dial that stuff in, then it actually makes room for you to have the romantic side. So if, if you're always fighting about who does the dishes and who does the laundry, then you, you, um, then there's no, there's no time to be romantic with each other. But if you dial that in, if you get the 80% right, then it makes room for the 20% that gives the, the richness to the relationship. But yeah. I'm going to say this, because I think this is funny. Like, Beth and I have actually recently just started talking to a marriage counselor just to, you know, um, help, help grow our relationship and everything. And he's saying the opposite to us. He said, you guys have spent so much time focusing on these logistics that you're not, you're not focusing on the strengths and warmth in your relationship. And, yeah. and it's like getting a 5% more improvement over there isn't going to do it. You actually have to change what you're framing and focusing on yeah. in order to get the transformation. So so you, you, you do need this kind of lower order taking care of the logistics of actually being able to defend yourself or making sure that you know how to be a domestic partner with your, your partner, but you can't, you can't get stuck at that local frame and ignore the bigger frame that you're trying to contextualize it within. Exactly. Exactly. I think that's, that's very well said. Yeah. I mean, so my, my concern as speaking sort of as a cognitive scientist is which is the boot camp lesson. You know how, how you get people being really good at fighting? You put mm -hmm. them into boot camp. Yeah, that's yeah. that's why all the militaries have figured this out. That's what you do. The problem is, you know, when we put people, we basically make people sort of psychopaths in boot camp. Like, you know, a, a lot of people will say when they're first out of boot camp, they were ex they're extremely dangerous. One person was telling me, you know, he came out of boot camp and he was in, in his room and his mom walked in and he almost killed her. Yeah. He was visiting. Right. And, and so, like, I, again, I, like, I, I don't know. Um, I don't know how to balance that. I, I mean, I don't know the theoretical argument about how to, because if we're really trying to get people to be prepared for violence, it's, I, I don't know. Is there anything short of boot camp that we've got good reason to believe will work? I, like, you, you and I both know stories of the master in some, in some effective martial art. And we've talked about it just a few minutes ago that for other reasons was completely devastated by the psychological context of the situation, right? Because uh, that's what boot camp works on that level. It doesn't, I mean, they're training your physical skills, but you know what they're mostly doing? They're breaking you down as a person yes. in a fundamental way. And, and, you know, I don't know if we can generalize that as a pedagogical yeah. tool. I think, I think boot camp, though, is, isn't just about personal capacity for, for, so it's for violence. Too. Yeah, it's yeah, yeah. really about creating a collective unit 
that can engage in violence. But, but even, even so your point stands, right? I was just thinking about one of my favorite kind of thinkers about violence and how we, how we can be capable of responding to it. Steve Morris, he, 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 um, he talks a lot about the idea that negative affect actually drives preparation for violence. Yes. So he points to, to research that shows this, that if you are in an alert, alarmed state, you will, you will have less of a sort of um, delay between the initiation of a potential ambush and your ability to respond to it. And you will respond with greater physical power and, you know, and things like this. And his, his answer to that is be, be in it like a, close to a rage state as much as possible. Yes, but this 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 to me looks like a great example of like of choosing to play the local game at a way that's going to make you much worse at the meta game. Very, very, very much. Right. Um, but but I because I, I I always found that scene in The Unforgiven chilling. Right, okay. what made him dangerous was not a skill. Mm-hmm. He wasn't fast, or he could, and he he needed alcohol to do it. But he could turn on a switch and become a psychopath. Yep. He's just the cold hearted killer. Right. Um, which is not, which by the way, doesn't contradict what you just said. He's no, in no. This, right. And it's like, well, alcohol has yeah, been a huge, huge tool for that for militaries throughout history too. Right. And that, but pay attention to the title of the movie. No, the no. price he paid is he's yeah. the unforgiven. I don't want to be the unforgiven. I'm sure you don't No. Um, and, and so like, yeah, for me, I, I'm sorry. I'm not. I'm not being very helpful. I'm problematizing this, but this is this is what, what how I think about this when I when I reflect on it. It's like, what is it I really want to be training here ultimately? And I, I get yeah. your point. How how do I how do I how do I not delude myself about you know being able to handle self defense? Uh, but how do I also like like yeah because the, you know the the, the 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 thing about optimal grip is there's no set place right. There's no algorithm where the mm-hmm. optimal grip between the bottom up and the top down is shifts according to the context exactly yes so um the 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 strategy that that steve is talking about is very mm-hmm. appropriate for a soldier in the depths of the jungles of vietnam during yes. world war ii yeah. it, it may yeah. be a necessary component of survival but for myself you know living with three small children and a wife <laughs> and yeah. working in, a, in an environment where like my primary job with people is really to be loving towards them <laughs> Yeah. Right. It's not, you know, and the likelihood of me being assaulted in the small town that I live in, in the, you know, uh, in the US is, is low. Right. Um, so it's like, it would be a massive, like, so yeah, I'm going to sacrifice some defensibility, right. Some, some ability to handle the scenario of actual lethal violence in order to not be a, a danger to myself and my family. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's kind of like, I mean, you know, obviously <laughs> don't want to get too deep into the gun debate but this is this is the pro the you know right this is right at the heart of, of the gun debate which is should you have the right to self-defense yes is it worth taking on like a lot of gun violence is incidental or self-harm or that, by family members or by family yeah. members and it's done in the heat of the moment and yes and so the, the gun itself is a kind of accelerant of the potential for violence yes so that's not to say that no, that I'm against people owning guns, right? I, I understand your point. Yeah. It's an, it is this optimal grip point, but yeah. you have to think about it that, but I think it's a valuable way to think about it is the, 
the presence of the gun itself changes the constraint landscape in an important way. Yes. That can that inherently increases the potential for lethal violence to occur. So it may be worth it because of the deterrent effect that it has, or because of other cultural values or things that it gives to your life. Um, but you need to, but if you make that choice, you have to recognize how you've changed those constraints and work yeah. to proactively do them. It's the same thing. If you want to train yourself to be at a hair trigger to hurt somebody with your hands, um, then you need to also be training yourself to be really good at contextualizing when that's the appropriate and how, you know, like everyone who, you know, who works with firearms, know you always treat a gun as if it's loaded. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Never point a gun at somebody. Right. Um, And so what is the equivalent for someone who's cultivating this extreme self-defense mindset? How did they have rituals and, and, and guardrails around that capacity they've built in themselves. So there isn't a, you know, misfire incident that, that badly hurt somebody. When, when Beth and I first got together, like I was training martial arts all the time and I elbowed her in the face in my sleep. Like, yeah, I, I, I do, uh, in a previous marriage, yeah. uh, my, well, she's my ex-wife now, but she sort of jumped out of me from a bathroom like, in, yeah. like there's this joke and I had her on the ground without thinking she was, Oh, that's like, yeah. Oh, should be doing that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, yeah. Right. No, I, I, I get that. So, so for me, right. If this goes back to the point I wanted to make that I, I don't think there can be any deep um, separation between the cultivation of wisdom and the practice of the martial arts. Uh-huh. Uh, that's okay. I like that. That's a very interesting idea because essentially what you're saying is that, because of the nature of that specific task. It's like, okay, you can, you, can, you can get really good at chess and whether it has any impact on your wisdom is relatively irrelevant. Yeah, 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 yeah. But when you're taking on something that has not just the potential to injure you, but injure anyone around you, it inherently has to be oriented. It, if it's not, if it doesn't go to that higher order, then it's actually irresponsible. Yeah. And, and it's also like given our previous point too, it could also be a, a significant waste of your time. Yeah. Right? right. Well, it's what you're talking about. We're talking about positive transfer. Now we're talking about negative transfer. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you've trained yourself in such a way that you're going to respond to a surprise from your intimate partner with, with violence, yeah. you, you have trained yourself in a way that you've created a massive potential for negative you know, impact, you know, with a much lower potential of that actually having a positive impact on your life. Yeah, I think that's right. So, yeah, thank you for recognizing because this is, we sort of, in some sense, we built an argument I've been making for, right, why those two have to be wedded together deeply, deeply wedded together. They have to be, there has to be sort of reciprocal reconstruction between the martial arts and the cultivation of wisdom. Yeah, I, I, I actually think that, that that there could be we could do a series of talks about that you and I and also bringing in some other people from the martial arts community because I think it's yeah. a, a extraordinarily deep topic and I, I I think it's been revelatory also of the central theme that we're talking about here but I don't want the, the conversation to also collapse completely into that specific aspect of the martial arts right sure of course we're, we're, we want so I want to actually kind of 
go back to framing, even though we're an hour into this conversation. But I yeah. want to ask, what is mindfulness? So, I mean, that, that even though there's a journal dedicated to its name yeah. and all of that, um, that's a controversial thing to ask um, in that um, many people, myself included, are very critical of how it is typically defined or understood, uh, like especially in the so-called West. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, um, I think mindfulness is how I would try to boil it down. So I don't like the feature list of, you know, being present in a non-judgmental way, right? Um, like mm-hmm. Alex, the sort of John Cabot yeah, yeah. said, he, he did a lot and I, I don't, I don't. You're, I think you're fast forwarding that because you know that I'm aware of what you're saying, but yeah. let's remember that, that, that there's many people. Okay. Who so the, the, what the, is the know, feature list that's generally given for mindfulness? You know, the, the idea is the, what it is to be mindful is to pay attention uh, in the present moment in a non-judgmental fashion. And this will somehow make you more insightful, less reactive. That's a list of features. And that's a variation on, uh, uh, you know, a definition of mindfulness that John Kabat-Zinn made famous. Uh, like I said, I, I, I'm hesitant to criticize him. Uh, I'm not criticizing him as a person or the mission he did for bringing Buddhism into the, the West and things like that. The, the, those are different conversations. The, the problem that I, I've had with that I wrote an article, 2016, a book chapter with Leo Ferraro on reformulating the mindfulness construct. I have a, I have a chapter coming out in the philosophy of meditation, the, the Routledge handbook um, of philosophy of meditation edited by Rick Ripetti, um, mm-hmm. where I've done more recent work. But the basic argument is um, that feature list is a very inadequate way of talking about mindfulness precisely because it's a feature list. Uh, my standard example is if I tell you what a bird is and I just say it has wings, feathers, and it flies, I just get a couple of wings and some feathers and throw them in the air. You don't have a bird yeah, because yeah. the structural functional organization is missing. Um, and then what you need to do is you need to ask causal and sort of constitutive questions. Um, and, and you also need to do something else. Sorry, I'm trying to pack a lot into a little bit. You, mm-hmm. you, you have to be careful to not directly take the language of how you train a skill into how you try to explain explain it because the language of training and the language of explaining work according to very different parameters, very different goals, yeah. very different standards of good and bad. Um, and if you just if you just go uh, from one to the other, you'll make all kinds of mistakes. And I can give people if they want lots of clear examples with the language yeah. of training. I think I've talked about this a lot myself. So I, I mean, you know, I'm sure there's some people who aren't completely training, but if you go and you, like, I'll give you a really classic example. Telling people that they need to fire their glutes in order to jump effectively is extremely poor cueing. It is a it is a accurate description of how jumping works, that the glutes are a prime mover in the jumping yeah. action, but it actually disrupts yeah. the, 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 uh, the skill. And similarly, um, some of the language that we use in coaching to describe how, how we want someone to do a skill is actually very inaccurate if you're trying to describe it at a at a physical level. So Nick Wickman's work, Nick yeah. Nick's work yeah, exactly. is clear evidence of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. In his great book, The Language of Coaching, and yeah. some of the dialogues we've I've had yeah. with him and you've had with him and we've had together. So mm-hmm. let's take it that th- yeah. that's all. So what's happening with that is you get this feature list that doesn't capture 
the structural functional organization of the phenomena, which means it's already setting you to misunderstand the phenomena. And it's drawn almost without critique out of the language of training mindfulness into mm -hmm. how we explain what mindfulness is. And so this, this is a very mistaken and misshapen. And then finally, what you get is you get a bunch of things, an ecology of practices, and you get it reduced to a, a single thing, meditation, for example, and then set, and then you also remove it from its overall like telos, which was, you know, transformation of the individual, and you reduce it to making people contented with their position within corporate capitalism or something <laughs> like that, right? Uh, and that's what the make mindfulness critique is, right? Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that, you know, what we've turned mindfulness, 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 I mean, the Buddha was talking about something that was supposed to be, you know, and I mean this, I mean this, I don't mean this primarily politically, but he was talking about something that was supposed to be profoundly culturally revolutionary yes, and to yes. get it to reduce to, well, I can do my job today. Like that's not what, what's going on there. Okay. So mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm doing this very quickly. There's more extensive versions of these critiques. So I want to put away sort of a lot of standard models of what people think when they hear the word mindfulness and propose something different. That mindfulness is an awareness and an appropriation of your capacity for problem framing so that you have more cognitive flexibility within all of your cognitive framing, how you formulate all of your problems. That's what mindfulness ultimately is. It's a, it's a paying attention to framing yeah, so yeah. that you so, get the ability to intervene in it. Yeah. That feels true, but I actually feel like it feels somewhat incomplete because it feels like that's almost propositional. Does that make sense? Because you're, oh, you're sort of like what I'm hearing is, is it's a kind of training in metacognition, right? It's, a, it's an ability to notice the frame that you're operating within. And, and I don't know, maybe I'm wrong here and, and tell me, but I feel like that, that, that. No, no, you're right. Layer. If that's what you're getting, then I have been inadequate. Okay. I'm trying to point to a dynamic. Right. I'm trying to. So it's not when I when I when, that's why I was trying to capture this notion of not only awareness, but the ability appropriate. That's why I use the metaphor of looking at my glasses. Right. Yeah. So. Right. So this is my framing. Right. I'm looking mm -hmm. through and by means of and in meditation, I step back and look at it exactly. in order to see how it might be distorting in contemplation. I, I, I now see if I can see differently into the world and each acts as a correction on the other. Like it's because I might get a sense that as I'm looking out into the world that things are distorted that I do this, but how do I know that any intervention I've done there is good? Well, I put my glasses back on and see if I can solve problems or see things that I couldn't see before. I'm talking about a, a dynamical system, right? That, that's what I was trying to convey with this notion of appropriate. I was trying to, that what you're doing is you're aware of it in, in you're aware of your framing in your ability to break frame and make frame in a coordinated fashion that improves across multiple domains, your optimal grip on the world. That's how I would put it. Yes. Yeah. You said in, in, I highly recommend anyone who wants to dig deep into this, watch the, the episodes on mindfulness and insight in awakening from the meaning crisis. In one of those videos, you said that mindfulness is how we train attention to be systematically more capable of insight. Yes, exactly. That, I like, is, that's a good way of putting it. Yes. And I think this gets right to the heart of like how as a movement, well, there's two things that I want, right? I want to be able to say as a movement athlete, go to mindfulness and, and improve my abilities as a movement athlete. And yeah. then I also want to go to mindfulness and improve my ability to, to extract from 
my movement practice, lessons that make me a better human outside of my mindfulness practice. Wow, that's very well said. I like that. That was very well said. Thank you. So we are, yeah, we're, we're, we're engaging in this capacity to recognize the way that you frame things. I've kind of evolved a, a specific ecology of, of mindfulness practices, which are interesting because I think they illustrate some of the core themes of what we do. And it, it wasn't intentional. It wasn't like I went out and selected these, but I, I found one and then found another. And then all of a sudden I just sort of started to do them. But I use essentially like a Vipassana practice, a concentration practice where we either, con you know, concentrate on the breath, concentrate on a point or do both. Right. Um, and, and what I'm looking for is that ability to sink into this idea of the here and now, right. Which, um, like you talked about the fact that those are, are indexes that are really difficult to, um, to define. But I think one way to think about them is that we can look at them as, as scalar, right? We can, we could say that, you know, there's the here that I'm experiencing like in my body, or I could say the here that I'm experiencing between the tips of my fingers. Then there's the here that's this room. Then there's the here that's this house. Yeah. And there's the here that's being in Bellingham, right? And it scales out, right? And then there's the now of like, you know, I think that the human perception goes down to basically a very specific amount of time, right? There's, there's a point at which we can't really differentiate more deeply than that. And then there's like the present as opposed to the past, which could be, you know, 50 years ago. Yep, yep. And what it feels like to me is that it's kind of like, how local can I get my attention? Mm. How, how much can I dial that attention into something very local, which is, which is an interesting thing for like, as an athlete, having your attention defray out from where it needs to be is a, is a particularly problem, problematic thing. Like, I think possibly because of my ADHD or whatever, that was a problem I had a lot when I first started training and I would, I would fall and hurt myself very frequently just because a thought would intrude on me mm -hmm. during the performance of an act or my attention would leap too early through a sequence. So I would be sort of saying, I need to do this step and then this step and then this step. And on that second step, my attention would already be too far to the third step. And that's when I would fault. Right. And so this ability to attune the attention in is really critical. So then we take that, that, so, so I look at, at a stillness practice, which is one way of thinking about this, right? I'm, I'm into, I'm moving between stillness and movement, but in the stillness aspect of my practice, I can really focus on what is happening at the layer of my attention and how powerfully can I localize it? And there's the sense that when I've really localized it for a period of time, there's almost a disappearance of the self into it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And what I do is once I, once I feel like I've gotten that, then I want to use it to first experience my body, to cultivate the internal awareness of my body so that I can better resolve any issues that are happening with the body. And then... I do meta, right? I think about the relationships that are important to me and how I want to operate within them, right? May I be well, may I be at peace, may I love and be loved, right? Yep. And if I can, and I don't always do this one, but the other aspect of it is the sit spotting. 
which is turning my attention on the natural world. So I'm, in some sense, we're kind of moving through the four E's of cognitive science. Yes. Right. I am first just kind of engaging in the cognition and trying to become more adept at that and then centering it into my body and then centering it into the extended relationships that I have and then into the, the, the world in which I'm embedded. You enacted embedment. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I agree. You've, you've of course, uh, recapitulated an ecology of practices or something very analogous that I was taught. Yeah. As well. <laughs> um, yeah. I think that's exactly right. And that goes towards the kind of, to loop it back, that goes towards the kind of degeneracy we were talking about earlier. Because these various dimensions of mindfulness, they shouldn't be practiced separately from each other. Mm-hmm. But neither should you try and find some homogeneity just blob them together if you'll allow me, right? Yeah. They, 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 over, they simultaneously overlap and are differentiated from each other and they dynamically constitute and constrain each other in, yeah. in a very powerful way. And that's exactly what I, I, I wanted to get at about a, 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 dege- a dynamic degeneracy, if people are hearing that correctly now, yeah. of attention, right? That, that yeah. That's the kind of thing that, because what that does is it gives you this meta-optimal grip it gives you an optimal grip on your optimal gripping, um, which I think is the, the, the analog to the evolution of evolvability. Okay. So I wanted to, that's a good one. It, it's a analog to the evolution of evolvability. It's a way of cultivating evolvability within yourself. Exactly. It's actually like, I think that's at the heart of solving the meta crisis, right? Because what we have is a problem that the environment is shifting at a rate that is higher than has ever been in the past. And so the capacity to extract out those higher order insights that allow us to effectively organize human life towards the good um, become less and less obvious because the local circumstances are more and more variable. Exactly. And I mean, there's been a sequence of dialogues, particularly with Jordan Hall and I, yeah. around this theme around this theme exactly exactly yeah. this is the point and this is part of um it's it's a it's a loving critique and i just had a great discussion with paul van de clay and paul antletter yeah. uh, uh, but this part of my critique of what and i know you push back on me on this but that's the core of the critique my concern i guess is a better way of putting it about whether or not um the existing world religions have the right genetic code <laughs> in order to to meet the current challenge that that that's part that's that 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 is at the core of my concern i know i know there's a counterbalance yeah. argument, which well is- i think that's i think that that your concern can be true and my critique can both be true i, I was just about but, to say yeah, yeah. I, was, I, I was just about to say that they they're not exclusive of, of each other um, and, and yeah. i often say that i do not have a foreclosure argument against yeah. The, uh, against the world yeah. religions. I don't, yeah. but I, I, I do have a concern and I'm expressed, that's the concern. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's, a, a, I have the same concern. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I, I wanna, come, maybe we'll have a chance to come back to that or maybe we'll have to pick that up again, but I wanted to go back for a second too. Um, I wanna talk a little bit about the ecological dynamics idea and, and how it attunes to this because they talk about skill, skillfulness 
is not a program that is cultivated in the mind, right? Rather, it's, it's a way in which we, um, we educate attention, intention, and calibration of action. Yeah. And I think this really aligns with what you're talking about in a deep and important way, right? And you talked about the metaphor, uh, Siddhartha is like, um, you're talking about in, in your discussion of Buddhism, the middle way was described as tuning the instrument correctly. Yes. Yes. Neither too tight nor too loose. Yes, yes. And I think there's something really deep about that because, because it's, it's not just that there's too tight and too loose, right? It's that when the thing is tuned correctly, it become, comes into harmony and there's emergent capacity within it. Exactly. That's exactly right. And, and so I'm, I'm struggling to some degree with some of the aspects of the ecological dynamics or ecological psychology and how I think there's something it's grounding out in a, in a, in a philosophical position that's Heideggerian that I'm not sure that I can fully like that. I think there's something missing there, um, but I don't know that I understand it completely yet, but, but I think that that's, that's key. And, and I wanted to go, I wanted to go back again to this, the central ideas how can we utilize these tools so as better to improve within our practice and use our practice to improve within life? And so, oh, where, where, where did I want to go with this? Ah, insight, right? You also conceptualize flow as an insight cascade. Very much. Right. And, and so, and, uh, mystical experiences is kind of hyperflow yeah. and except yeah. the cognitive continuum proposal. Yes, yeah. very much. So flow is a form of insight cognition. And, and, and we know that the meditation systematically improves our capacity for insight. And we know also that it improves our capacity for flow. Very much, very right? much. Then that, that if, we can, if, we, if we can access that within our physical practice, we know that it will improve us, right? But also yeah. if, we can, if we can scaffold up the embodied aspect of who we are such that we have access to it in a way that that informs that in, uh, uh, insight capacity, I believe that's actually central to becoming truly virtuous people. That, we, that, that going up to that higher order principle, we have to, we have, to have that bottom-up, top-down interaction. I totally agree. I think that's exactly right. That's why I, I, I've, I've been using this paired phrase, virtue and virtuosity, as yeah. a way of trying to capture uh, the two together. Exactly. I think that's right. Um, uh, and, and that virtual engineering that which brings in the third, right? The virtue, virtue, virtuality, and virtuosity are all inter, interwoven. Um, because what, I mean, I would say in addition to attentional practices, there are imaginal practices we yeah. have to engage in that are also have this capacity uh, to afford, uh, you know, get, getting yeah. us the right flow from the bottom up and the top down. Yeah, that's... That's kind of the next set of questions that I have, which we don't have time to, to serve all of them. But, yeah. um, but I wanted to just review some of the ground that we went over because I think it's, it's profound. So when I train one skill, I learn something that allows me to attune my attention and uh, you know, um, intention and, and calibration in that skill. When I learn multiple skills, I start to extract out higher order principles that can help me. Yeah. So now what I experience as an athlete moving into a new domain is that 
it's still a struggle initially, but I have an access to a more rapid series of insights that give me control of that skill more rapidly. Yep, that sounds possible. Yep. Right. So then, then what I've seen happen is that those insights that I'm experiencing physically show up in life, in, in social relational. Let's, let's, we can, we yeah. can, yeah. like you talked about, I did Tai Chi and people noticed I was a different human being. So, yeah. so you had a physical practice that had a transfer at a social relational level. Totally. And cognitive. Yeah. And my wife just talked about, she's having the exact same experience right now, relative yeah. to rock climbing. Yeah. You know, I've had, uh, you know, uh, one of the women we talk about her experience a lot. She, she, she did this jump. She, she asked if she could cry while she was jumping. I said, yes. And it changed her whole sort of perception of how you take on challenge. And then she felt like she could go back to that experience of having jumped. And it wasn't just that she did the jump. It was the emotional context of the jump and what it resolved. It gave her this insight that she that was then able to apply to her life repeatedly to navigate problems at the interpersonal and business level. So we know that can happen. And we also know that it doesn't always happen. Yeah. So if, if what mindfulness is, is a system to, to cultivate the capacity for, for that inside generation, if we can put in relationship to those physical practices that should give us a better virtual engine for becoming more capable of those insights. Yeah, I think that's totally right. And, okay. and, and, and you, I mean, you've got some, you've already got the overlap that affords adaptation because when people are in seated meditation, the cerebellum is highly active, which yeah. is paradoxical yeah. given that you're not moving, right? Yeah. And so you're, you're already, uh, uh, you know, uh, driving some of the machinery that you're going to be using on, on both of those, right? Because the cerebellum yeah. doesn't care if it's coordinating sensory motor or if it's connecting uh, Heidegger to Marleau-Ponty. It doesn't, right? Yeah. It doesn't care uh, about how you're mapping complex contingencies. So yes. Getting into the cerebellar loop and some sort of these like neural and deep cognitive structures and how they relate to this, that'd be a really fascinating place to get deep. But I did want to touch briefly on the spirituality aspect of this and the, the sort of the meta crisis because we've, we've touched on it a little bit. Multiple times. That's what I most care about right now. Yeah, yeah. Good, good. Because as I was, I was thinking about, as I was writing up my questions for this, one of my questions is, how is and so I'm going to give you multiple questions. So don't jump right away. But how is meditation different from prayer? That was the first question. The second question to occur to me as I was doing this is the first place that the Eastern meditative traditions go is attention to the breath. To a modern Western mind, that's a purely physical thing. But in almost every previous cosmological worldview, breath is spirit. Yes, very much. It's, insp it's inspiration. It's, it's um, right, uh, the pneuma. It's like there's so many terms that, are, that, are, that have to do with the way that we think about essence. Essence, <laughs> this is breath too, right? So if, you are, if you're a Buddhist or a Taoist and you're doing seated meditation or, a, or you're Vedanta, uh, right? 
and you're doing cinema meditation and you're attending to breath, you're attending to spirit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But when it's extracted and brought to the West, we, we can conceptualize, we can frame mindfulness in this way that ignores those resonances of, of spiritual meaning to the physical acts of how we do this. So I'm cu- I'm just curious to have you address those questions. I mean, I don't know if I frame it as a question well, but no, I, I can take it as a question. That's Good. fine. Let, let, let's do the second one first, which is, uh, you know, yeah, there's a danger of physiological reductionism. Totally. Totally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we keep doing this with everything. You know, we basically did that to yoga. It's yeah. Physiological reduction. <laughs> uh, so following the breath, right? Think about, think about where the breath sits phenomenologically functionally for you. It sits on the border between the voluntary and the involuntary. It sits on the border between the inner world and the outer world. It yeah. sits on the border between life and death for you. The, the point of following the breath is to situate yourself on that, that cuspal point, not just to track the inflow of a certain number of gases into mm-hmm. your abdomen and then the expulsion. The point is to situate yourself, right? Where the breath is as a, like I said, as a, as a, as a phenomenological functional thing for you. You have to get back into like what, uh, you have to recover the exactive potential of the breath, uh, right? It can be exacted like I just did. See how I can think about the, you know, the voluntary and the involuntary. I can think about the inner and the outer. I can think about the border between life and death, right? Because when, when like, because the, the pause feels like death and then the, the fullness of life when it, like, there's all this stuff that's going on in the breath. Uh, and, and, and so there was reason why spiritus means, right? <laughs> right. And, and think also the wind. And, and, you know, who has seen the wind, famous Canadian novel, the wind moves itself, right? And, and you move yourself. There's that, like, you have to, you have to appreciate, um, you, you have to appreciate the phenomenological functional range of the phenomena, ju- not just its physiological presence to you, like, but, but the point, that, but the point is that skill generalizes because we, we like, do you see what I'm saying? See, notice how I'm taking sight and using it. Well, mm-hmm. go back and unpack that. Open that up. Like all of these things can be, uh, I do that often in the series. Go back and open it up, right? And, and resist, right? Resist the trivialization and reductionism that our culture is, is guilty of. So that's how I would answer the second thing. It's like you should be, don't, don't do, don't follow the breath as just a physiological phenomenon because that's not all it is for you recover everything that it is for you like really almost like you're like you're 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 sitting like really situate yourself in the phenomenological functional web of the breath don't just follow it physiologically um now that doesn't mean that you're doing philosophy when you're doing that do what we did here really really sensitize yourself to the web and then and then and here's the this sounds like a zen koan and then just follow the breath it's like activate all of that so it's there, right? It's there, but you're, but all you're doing is following the breath, but all of that will impregnate your awareness of the breath as it wants to. Wow. I don't know if that answered the second question. 
I think it, it was a beautiful exploration, right? Um, we are, I, I think it, it wasn't, it wasn't maybe the answer to the question that I had, but it was an answer to, uh, <laughs> to something that was happening within the question, right? Which is that, what is it to focus on the breath? Yes. And how does the culture that we're in actually um, narrow what that means in a yeah. way that dilute us to the meaning of these practices that, that we are adopting? Um, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm trying to call forth the argument that David Abram makes in the final chapter of the Spell of the Sensuous, which is called the, the, the I think it's called the Forgetting and Remembering of Air. Mm. And it's all about this theme that, that, that breath was sacred, that breath was conceived as continuous with wind, which was conceived as continuous with spirit. Right? Yes. And he talks about this. He gives the example of the Navajo and their, their idea of the different winds that come together and, and make a human soul when the, when the child is, is conceived. Um, and also uh, in the Jewish tradition, he talks a lot about the idea of what happened when we invented vowels yeah. and that before the vowel was the wind yeah. right? and it was the representative of the spirit that made the text alive and you had to read it and you had to know how to read it in order to bring it to life yeah 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 um, and so there's something and I, I agree with you that I, th I think of the breath as the it's it's liminal or it's the twilight right it's the point between the conscious and the unconscious. And we can, I've used my breath to track myself down into my heartbeat and learning to actually have some control of my heartbeat. It's very minimal, um, yeah. but you can do that. And then yeah, even yeah, like yes, looking at yeah. my digestive system, but it's like, can you start to feel that? Right? And there's the idea of like inner, inner alchemy. Can you change things that aren't conscious? Mm -hmm. And Fundamentally, the, one of the big things that I think about with, with my work as I'm trying to describe it to people is this idea of the integration of, of, of the aspects of the self in a much more complete way, right? We, we are not just a set of thoughts in a brain, right? Yes, that's right. Right, we, we need to, I struggle with this because it's like, you can't separate the mind and the body. And yet we have to conceptually see them as um, diverged in some sense in order to see how we intentionally integrate them. Right? This is your idea of complexification. It's like we can see the, 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 the systems as, um, as in some sense separated, but then also only, 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 only having meaning in some sense, only having function in their integration. And then that integration of the blind body environment and tribe. Yeah. Right. That's, that's what people need in order to have that experience of meaning in life. I agree with all of that. Um, there's two things I want to say. One in reply to that, and then to answer the first question you posed, which is, um, you know, that's, that's, the, that's like at the core of participatory knowing, really wrestling with, and I mean it phenomenologically, functionally, not just conceptually, but, but not excluding the conceptual either, right? Um, really wrestling with mind-body um, trains you in a transferable skill because that's also the relationship between the past and the present. Mm -hmm. You can't reduce one to the other, but they're not separable from each <laughs> other in any way. 
right? And there's other, there, the transcendent and the imminent, eternity and time. Like when you, like you, in, you, and I mean this profoundly, you are an, you are an constantly enacted symbol that had, that is there, pregnant with, you know, an education, a way of scaffolding you to, to grapple with some of the big questions of reality. And that, and so you're practicing that, like you just did, in a mindfulness practice, you're practicing tapping into that exaptive potential of the body as a living symbol that allows you. I mean, I, I'm almost sounding like the hermetic tradition, now, but yeah. allows you like the microcosm to the macrocosm. Like yeah. part of mindfulness is to awaken that from yeah. going it from being an inert potential to an actual potential for you. <clears throat> that gets me to the first question, which is what's the difference between meditation and prayer? And I would say. They 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 display degeneracy with respect to each other. They overlap, but they're different. Um, and the way uh, because and there's places where they're indistinguishable. So when you're getting the centering prayer, it's and many people would in the Christian meditation tradition would agree with this. You're doing something that is pretty much like meditation. And then when you're going up to something like petitionary prayer, you're very very far from it. And what's what I would propose you're varying in there. Yeah, and you you also do the you also do this in meditation, like I'm in meditation, but or especially in contemplation, the degree to which I involve the imagine the imaginal. So as the imaginal starts to take more and more center stage, I would say you're shifting from mindfulness, meditation, contemplation into prayer. But you you but they overlap. Like so, when you're doing the view from above, you're doing the, you're doing the imaginal in a very powerful way. And that's nevertheless, right, still yeah. seen as, as a mindfulness practice. So, and, and, and you know, if you read, if you read, so this, this, this is overly simplified, but like when you read the, the, the great Christian thinkers about prayer, it sort of comes down to this. <laughs> the only thing you should really pray for is wisdom. That's yeah. the only petitionary prayer. And then that becomes kind of indistinguishable from, um, you know, imaginal contemplation. Um, so when I'm doing the view from above, okay, that maybe that doesn't feel like prayer because it's not dialogical, but there's contemplative practices that are dialogical. So when Antistenes said he learned from Socrates how to talk to himself, well, he's sort of, he's internalized Socrates and he's doing this imaginal inner dialogue. Is that prayer? Is that meditation? And I don't know if much hangs on like trying to keep them cleanly distinct. I think they do this with respect to each other. Um, now, do I think people I, turn prayer into a kind of idolatrous behavior? Yeah. Like, you, you know, and Lerman talks about this beautifully and how God becomes real. She says, you know, there's different kinds of real. There's real, causal real, and then there's this other real um, that, that is basically the imaginal real. And she says, you know, I talk to Christian fundamentalists and they'll say Jesus is real, but you're not allowed to do this. You're not allowed to say, well, I won't do my homework. I'll let Jesus do it, right? <laughs> right, right, right. And I mean no insult to Christians here. The point is, right, there's like the imaginal can get confused with the causal, but if you pay very careful attention um, to even people who are in their, in what they do and how they practice, not what they say, you'll, you'll notice that they are actually keeping they're trying not to conflate these two together. Um, so to my mind, the danger of prayer that isn't 
uh, a danger in meditation. I'll talk about the, the dangers in meditation in a second, mm-hmm. right? Um, the danger in prayer is to confuse the imaginal with the causal. And, uh, and that I think is, uh, is a very significant danger. Now there's a counterbalancing danger within meditation with uh, which the Buddha warned against, which is the, right. There's spiritual bypassing. There's a kind of contentedness. And this is part of the make mindfulness yeah. critique yeah. too. There's a kind of, there's a contentedness with oneself that is actually the worst possible bullshit for, <laughs> for right. Preventing you from the growth that, uh, that you need mm-hmm. to undertake. And I mean, and this is becoming a serious phenomena. One of the negative side effects of the mindfulness revolution and the new age movement and related things, you know, and psychologists are now studying this as a bona fide phenomena is spiritual bypassing, which is what I do is I I, I go in and I have these wonderful experiences. And this is so pertinent to what we've all been taught, what you and I've been talking about throughout all of this. And they don't transfer. In fact, they do the opposite. They they delude me into believing I don't need to consider that transfer. I don't need to be involved with that worldly thing or that materialistic thing or that or that or that or that. And Neoplatonism was guilty of this too, right? Mm-hmm. Porphyry began his biography of Plotinus with this, and this always terrifies me. Plotinus behaved like a man who was ashamed of having a body. And it's like, whoa, I don't want to be that person ever, right? Yeah. Uh, and so, right, like, they, like, what I, I wanted to be balanced in the critique. Prayer has its idolatry, if, if you'll allow me a biblical term, yeah. and, and meditation has its its as well. Um, spiritual bypassing is just, I, I meet so many people who, and all they want to do is tell me of their wonderful experience and why they don't need to do philosophy and why they don't need to read books and why they don't need to, why they don't need to cultivate virtue because they're enlightened. Don't, they're enlightened and don't you just know it? Don't you just know it? And it's like, Mm, probably not i've met one or two people in my life who i might say were enlightened and uh, i haven't seen good evidence for this being a general thing um I, and so yeah spiritual bypassing is also a very important very important deal. this is why what you do is so important thank you there's no spiritual bypassing allowed in evolve move play it just no. it's not going to find a home there it's no. not going to find a home there no i one of the you know a big part of my formation is my, you know, having been absorbed and grown in, up in the counterculture and then having rejected it. Um, and one of the moments what I remember feeling the most sort of sense of like, I, I'm so not this and I'm so against it was, well, it was either 19 or 20. And I was sitting in a sauna with some other kids who'd grown up in the hippie community and they, and we were, t- I was, talking to them i was passionate about the politics of the time about the iraq war or the 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 wars that were about to happen and the environmental crisis and these kids were like it doesn't matter man we're all going to vibrate to the next dimension we just need to like evolve higher consciousness and i was like no (laughs) and and it was so it was and i've seen that thing so many times like that's why i've been so hesitant about the use of the word spirituality because you know, we're just going to manifest this, right? And it, it just, it's so non-virtuous to me, right? Yes. It's so lazy um, and it's so narcissistic. Yes. And yeah, so that we can have another, I mean, that'd be a whole another long conversation. Yeah. So I wanted to, I, I will say one thing, which I think is interesting. So idolatry, you threw that word out there and that's been happening in a lot of your conversations. And I think it's a really good one. I don't know that my audience has that impact, but 
it's the worship of the proximal thing when you should be oriented towards the the absolute, right? Yes. So if exactly. we go back to the example that we talked about earlier of like, you decide to take on self-defense. You don't decide to take on self-defense maybe just because you 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 want to you want self-defense maybe because you want to feel secure and you want self-defense because you want to be able to protect your family and you want self-defense for all these other reasons because it's going to help you grow as a human being. But then you go into self-defense. And, and it becomes so big in your mind that it's the thing that you worship. And then you start to make sacrifices to it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that are, that well, are hurting the things that you're actually trying to serve. And we can do this with any number of practices. And so this is, this is the real question I think is like, this is where it gets interesting is how do we, in, in, in some sense, like you have to worship self-defense. Yeah. Right? But you, but if you let it be the, the highest thing that you worship, then you're not actually serving the reason you showed up in the first place. And it's a, yeah. it's a bad God, right? Yep. It's a bad it's God. Self-defense is a bad God. Yeah. Like parkour, I would say, is a bad God. It, it's a good pathway towards seeing a higher God. <laughs> but yeah. if you stop there, then it's not serving you. And I, I think this idea of idolatry yeah. as that is really, really powerful. Um, it, it, it is, and, and I think it was, I, I, I might be misattributing it, but I think it was David Hume who said, you know, nobody chooses, and this is a platonic point, yeah. nobody, nobody chooses to do evil. Yeah. They, they choose a lesser good over a greater good. Yes, exactly. Wow, that's a beautiful idea. Um, so, so what you should be in, in, in the relationship of worship to, that's, that's, maybe the most important question, right? Um, because it's, it's what organizes your action towards the good. Um, so so I, you were talking about the imaginal, right? Once we access the imaginal, we're in some sense starting to, to move into prayer. And I, I thought about this because I think after I watched your, your thing on agape and, you know, I got into that. There was a point at which I was doing my meta meditation. At the end, I just played with this idea of like, may I love the world as Christ loved the world. Ah, right. It's like, can I imagine this person and the sacrifice they made and this, this narrative power? Yeah. And can I try to reflect it as yeah. much as possible? Yes. And of course, like right away, there's a problem there, which is, which you see all the time is people conflate themselves with the object of worship. Of course, of course. Yeah, right. Yeah. But uh, I, I, it's not like I've done that a ton. And my relationship with Christianity is still sort of um, probably fuzzy in a way that makes some people uncomfortable. But, uh, but, it, tender, but it's, tender, it's profound to me. Tender, which I think should be respected as well. What's that? And tender. One of the things you and I share is we've been hurt by religious formations in the past. And we're yeah. careful around them. There's, a, there, there's that. And yes. Uh, I, I just wanted to acknowledge that in you so other people would also pay proper attention to that when they're talking to you. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so I, I, I wanted to share that, I guess, as just a... Well, I can, can I ask you something? Can I ask yeah. you something about just that? So for yeah. me, the, the imaginal would be if you did that, and then when you open your eyes, it augments reality for you in a certain way. You start you it, it you start to see things in your in your actions towards others. 
that you couldn't have seen without having done that imagine that 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 imagistic practice like if the imagery affords ontological depth perception that's when it's properly imaginal yeah i think i'm not sure that i can disaggregate the effects of like the physical practices and the mindfulness practices totally. with the images i mean it's impacting the way that i see the world for sure in profound ways right i'm uh for, for me for, yeah. for example let me let me let me make it a little bit more specific it's hard to know how you would engage the perspectival transformation needed for agape without doing that kind of imaginal practice yeah and then the thing is but you don't want to measure it just from the inside well i did it you have to say like other people noticing me transform like when i did this did i see things and more importantly did people see me differently and yeah then certainly i've had yeah I've that's been, the imaginal that's yeah. the imaginal yeah I that's had, when if you'll allow me that's when your prayers are being answered there we go yeah i've had that i've had that that acknowledgement right from students like a, yeah, I have. I you are a different person than I remember five years ago, and and I this this new version is stronger and more admirable and more virtuous and, you know, mostly more loving. There you and go. There you go. And that's that's a yeah. Maybe that's maybe that's the best thing to be. Um, yeah. Well, so, why so loving? Think, that's the um, one thing. If I could ask, one thing I would do better in my life is like if I could love more wisely. That, yes, that, that would be it. That would be it. Precisely. So, yeah, um, we're gonna we're gonna end the live streams here soon. But is there any last words you'd like to share with uh, with people watching the live stream? Um, I, 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 this was a lot of um, it's to me this this it, what we did was <laughs> actually what I call philosophia, right? Yeah. It's not academic philosophy, but this, what we did together dialogically and how we were willing to move, zoom out, zoom in, move between levels, try to bridge across domains, all in guided by this, you know, sort of central following the logos, probing to get to the depths of something. That's what I mean by philosophia. I don't mean sitting around just talking about concept, this, this, and for me, this practice has got to be part of any ecology of practices that are being proposed uh, for responding to the meeting crisis. That would be my final thing I'd want to say. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about the idea, like, I'm not sure actually how many times you and I have spoken on my channel and your channel at this point. And it's like, for most podcasts, like once you've had a guest on there, kind of like you've had that guest on, you might have them on a couple of years later when they release a new book or something. Um, and I was thinking about that as, as I was preparing for this and like wanting to feel prepared enough that we could, we can generate something of real value for people. Um, but I think we're, we're getting better at talking to each other, right? Like we're accessing so. dialogos more profoundly yep. as we get more chances to speak to each other, which is a really, a really cool thing to feel like, like it's, it's cultivating things and really it's philia. Yeah. That's how friendship works. It's exactly yeah. like how friendship works. Remember that that's at the core of it. How did, yeah. like, well, I've, I met this guy and he was my friend and I don't need to see him again. Is that how friendship <laughs> works? No, that's not how it works. It's yeah. not how it works. Yeah. So wonderful. Thank you so much, John. So uh, Robert, go ahead and uh, 
end the live stream and we'll go to the Q and A. That was amazing, Grant. I really appreciate that. Cool, cool, cool. We are off the stream, and I think everybody can undo their or uh, go ahead and turn on your cameras. Beth, pop. So. Cool. So, um, John. I see Jake here. Jake uh, specifically found me through through our work, uh, our, our conversations together. Um, okay. I don't know if you've met Andrew. Andrew is kind of the main guy. You, you must have met Andrew with uh, Embodiment of Summer, but he's does a lot of our background building of stuff. Um, he has some questions for you, I think. Um, and this is Kelsey. And yeah, does anyone want to start a question? Uh, okay, let's start with uh, uh, let's start with Jake. All right, uh, thanks guys. That was a lot. I'm gonna need to listen to that like three more times. But um, <laughs> yeah, I feel like I just wanted to say I felt like this is a really good conversation to uh, practice listening to uh, to a philosophy because. You know, you start off, you go, what is mindfulness? And it's like, okay, uh, dog evolution, violence, um, <laughs> all over the place. But there, I was hearing echoes of the initial thread the whole way through. And I feel like learning to like really sink into that and follow that is a practice in itself, despite all the, or along with all the information. So, um <clears throat> I'll try to pick one question to be reasonable. Um, I guess I would ask in developing your own ecology of practices, with all of that in mind, what uh, we're talking about that the overlapping uh, redundancy is like a really good way to kind of track how your different practices will work together and provide more evolvability. Mm -hmm. What would be a good way of like uh, looking for that? And, uh, or like, not just in like, kind of going through the shopping list of practices, but like just in being able to recognize in things that I already do where I have that. And just, what should I kind of keep in mind or anyone to keep in mind for tailoring this kind of what work we're doing? Right, excellent question. Um, it's a question that, that, that I, I return to frequently and this is not in any way a complete answer, but I look for uh, design features of the ecology. Um, so I look for finding kinds of relations between practice. One was one that Rafe already mentioned, opponent processing. Can I can I see practices that have, uh, you know, you know, checks 
you know, strengths and weaknesses that counterbalance each other. So that's kind of opponency is one thing I look for. Another, another I look for is their layering. Layering is when you can see, when you can put, you can sort of map or merge a practice on top of another practice. Um, so for example, I can take Vipassana and Metta, and if I practice them right, right, they have opponency, there's one thing, but they also can be layered in Prajna, where I go from in and out to right? <laughs> the sound effect is important for the description. Um, so I, I look for the layering of the practices. Then I also look for practices that are bridging practices. So these are practices that will take me from one domain into the other, or what I often look for is practices that will help to bridge between different kinds of knowing. So Lexio Divina is very good for bridging between propositional knowing and perspectival, right? And then you can take that into other practices that then bridge the perspectival in the participatory. So I'm looking for opponency, I'm looking for layering, and I'm looking for bridging. Um, there's no doubt more that I should be looking for, but those are the ones that have come out clearest to me as important criteria that I look for when I'm trying to assess the health of an ecology of practices. Okay, thank you. Yeah, that. So that was I, awesome, John. That, uh, that I got it. Yeah, I think that I, I didn't even think that question could be answered that well, personally. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, sorry, that sounded weird. But um, I, can I just ask for like, a, give you an example for myself to see if I'm like, yeah, just yeah. hearing that right? So I'm a musician. So most of mine are more uh, creative or musical things. And um, so I, I was taking lessons with this guy, uh, Josh Brill, he's a friend of Jordan Hall's. And um, he um, teaches a course called the Yoga of Guitar, mm. where he, he kind of breaks down like into very small little bits, like just like, maybe I'll just have a practice where I'll just be playing two notes and I'll just be going back and forth between those and just uh, letting them like hit me and letting them resonate within me and yeah. like and having that affect my hearing so i hear it differently and yeah. have something like that and then and then let's say let's go back to something like vipassana and then like a i guess some a way of thinking of like a bridge between those or a, an overlap i suppose is trying to let that uh the same way that i listen to my guitar and let that yeah. sound influence yeah. me and how I'm hearing and yeah, then yeah. yeah. we'll have that the way I'm listening to my breath be the thing that kind of reshapes me so I can listen deeper into yeah. it they're, they're layering so what you're doing is you're you're reducing the representational scope and content and, and, right and what you're doing is you're trying to move down right to uh you know uh, the, the the sort of a core feature level and you're paying attention to it rather than trying to pay attention through it, right? And you're doing that both in Vipassana in that. So yeah, those would layer on to each other. And then what you could say is, yeah, but Vipassana should be, should be counterbalanced by a contemplative practice in which I'm zooming out. So is there a musical, musical equivalent in which I'm trying to leave the notes and get a deeper appreciation for, right? Uh, uh, like the variation and selection on kinds of gestalt 
uh, mm -hmm. that I'm capable of. And then what's the mapping? But so these two are doing opponent processing, and then do they layer on top of each other, right? And, mm. and then a bridging practice would be okay. But you know what happens when I introduce a mantra into the meditation, and what happens when I introduce words with the music, and can I compare them and contrast them? Things like that. Is that helping as a yeah, that's amazing. Thank you. I'm going to have a lot of stuff to try with that. Thank you. So I'd I, I actually want to ask a question about that one, too. Uh, sorry to, to hog the screen here, guys. But um, so just like thinking about it within the EMP model, right? So we, if we use something like a competitive martial arts frame, we know that we're going to be selecting out certain movement strategies, right? So if we use something like, um, like contact improv, what that does is sort of keeps expanding our movement movement sort of vocabulary right. with other people yeah. in a way that maintains that variation so that it can then be selected out again from the martial arts. So it's like, if I, if I start my sparring and I, um, and I'm, and I only have certain physical options, right. Then I may sort of avoid certain areas because I don't yet have action capacities or awarenesses that will allow me to effectively resolve them. By playing with something like contact improv, I can maintain some standing variation for that to select for as my competence improves. Yeah. Um, so crazy. that would be like an opponent processing for me. Now, if I discover something, let's say in, in my contact improv that I specifically want to bridge, Right. So I discovered, for instance, that contact improv can help me with acrobatics. So then I would want to constrain a game of contact improv in such a way that it's specifically pushing me towards cultivating that characteristic that will then show him up in my acrobatic practice. Yeah. Um, and then like the example I was thinking about with layering is like, that feels like it's like the relationship between say sit spotting and Vipassana, right? Yes. It's, I take this base capacity and then I express it in this new exactly. context exactly. Yeah. that, that um, allows me to gain something else from it, something more in some sense. So that, that I just love those. I want to like go back and map those three relationships all throughout what we've done with EMP and think about, is this the right way to describe them or multiple way to describe the, the way that those those aspects are, are interrelating with each other. So I just really loved that. And I wanted to, to run through it and make sure that it was, it was, it was mapping. So I wanted to, add, to go ahead and go to Andrew next. I know he had a question. Can I say one more thing? Cause yeah. I, I was, there's a meta one, which goes also to the core of what we were, some of the things we were saying. You also want, and this is the whole point of the dialogos, yeah. right? In ecology, you, you, you also want to have relations between individual and distributed cognition. You have to have a practice that is, is integrating those two together uh, because that's what prevents the autodidactism within the individual cultivation of an ecology of practices. Yeah, wonderful. So, yeah. Andrew. Cool. Uh, yeah, thank you again, just for um, like the whole conversation, just going back between you guys. There's just so much that like, I feel like I, again, uh, like Jake was saying, uh, it's just worth going back through again to just like uh, continue to extract all the insights and everything that was coming out of it. So I know there's gonna be some, uh, some things that isn't, um, maybe I'm not able to, to articulate through this, but 
just as an initial uh, framing question, um, just around some of the, the language that I'm, I'm hearing uh, you talk about through some of the metaphors and just kind of mapping that onto uh, some other frameworks. Um, you're in this conversation as well, um, but I first heard you talk about it in like the, the four enforcement of meaning conversation you recently had. Um, was you were using like the your glasses as the metaphor, I think, for yeah. religio. Yeah. And and then when you like take your glasses off, and then you're observing the glasses so that you can like uh recognize that they exist, first of all, um, but then modify and then improve on. Um, yeah. I think that was like how you're describing the meditation side of it. But then yeah. like when you're working through um like what are what are the implications of this and am i seeing it I, i'm thinking that that is also that's how you're describing uh philosophia um but i i want to clarify like the relationship between these terms the metaphor is just like a helpful way to ground it um and then i the if that is the case then the language that i was previously using for like the glasses uh, which i'm wondering if this maps or if it's separate is like a worldview paradigm, uh, you know, view of reality, like that, that kind of concept. So that's an excellent question. Uh, so what I would say is, you know, yeah, this is my, this is the meditative of religio, but then this is the contemplative. This is the contemplative. Dialogos, and I've never thought of extending the metaphor. So this is a wonderful opportunity is like um, me trying to wear your glasses and you wearing mine. Hmm. And and we and we're swapping glasses. If, if if like, oh, this is what it looks like for you, and this is what right. That's what the dialogos how it fits in. And then the point about that is right. It takes all three of those um, for us to properly become aware of what you what I've called in my work and what you what you're putting your finger on when you talk about worldview. The thing about a worldview is right. It has to simultaneously be individual and shareable. Mm -hmm. um, and, and we're collapsing what a worldview is because the worldview has to create right an arena for action and other people are always part of the arena. And, and if I can't share my worldview with them, then I don't have an arena. I, I can't get that, that attunement. Um, and so um, I think that when we're trying to see if we have worldview attunement, we need all three of those dimensions. We need the meditative on the religio, we need the contemplative, and we need the dialogical as a way of trying to see, like, look at, look at, for example, how when people are arguing about it, and they, they think what they're doing is you have your worldview, and I have my worldview, they're actually presupposing, and this is Marlo Ponti's point, they're actually presupposing a massive world of shared intelligibility that is actually their fundamental worldview. And it's being hidden by these more superstructures of their positions. Did that make sense? What I what I just said, and that only in the dialogic, like I will often only become aware of some of my deepest presuppositions dialogically. Like even with my deepest meditation, even with my most profound contemplation, I don't get at the the what the the, the presuppositions that constitute the worldview unless I I'm in dialogue with other people, uh, and so. I think if we're properly trying to see if we have the op, if we have an optimal worldview, we need all three of those dimensions coordinated together. Am I answering your question, or am I am I am I 
transforming it into something else I just want to talk about. I, sure, sure. So what I'm, what I'm kind of hearing you say there is um, religio is like our own glasses uh, yep. to like pull that off. That's kind of like a personal experience. So that way when I have the, um, were you saying the, the dialogos is when you swap the glasses yes. and the empathy? Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I think meditation and contemplation are individual practices. Mm -hmm. um in that way it, whereas dialogos is a is a communing communal practice and, and that if you and if you don't put individual cognition into proper relationship with distributed cognition you're actually misframing to yourself in a profound way what individual cognition is that mm -hmm. that's what i'm trying to convey yeah okay so so the individual component uh, might be more in like the, the religio framing but then the worldview component is like when we now we need this common language of a shared arena so that way we can actually dialogue about the things to recognize how can we adjust our own lenses yeah i mean one way of thinking about a world view is the way in which we we create shared networks of religio yeah cool. very much okay cool so it's this the worldview would be the shared network of religio that makes that makes sense in like the communal versus like personal framing of it and then I'm, I'm also kind of hearing like the refinement of it is around like, or in the direction of a, uh, like a wisdom framework. Yes, um, it's very much. Your, and then in this conversation as well, it kind of came up where the, the wisdom framework is in pursuit of like the highest virtue, which uh, we're kind of talking about as agape um, in a sense uh, with love. Uh, is that is that uh, also mapping to yeah, uh, I think, yeah, I mean, uh, the um, religio is about connectedness and where we become most aware of and therefore capable of educating our, our religio is in love. That's what I meant when I said, if I could do one thing well, it would be mm -hmm. to love wisely. Um, and so, yes, very much. Yeah. Awesome. And the, the best... The epitome of participatory knowing is knowing by loving, where I allow the thing to indwell me and I and I find a way of, without insult, indwelling the other. And that that reciprocal indwelling, that's a kind of knowing that is knowing by loving. Um, and it's a, and, and you have to love somebody from your heart, which doesn't mean your emotional center. Good grief. Where did we get, how did we get to that degenerate uh, romanticism? The heart of the matter. The heart of the matter doesn't mean the emotional center. It means the center of your being, mm -hmm. right? That's what it means. Awesome. Yeah, thank you for the response. I don't want to, to hold up the screen if anybody else has some questions. Um, and uh, we do have, uh, you know, of course, I have a couple of that I, I would be happy to share if we had time. Um, but then, Rafe, uh -huh. we also have a question from Martin. Yeah, um, we have a, a quite long question from Martin. Um, before we get to Martin's question, is there anyone else on the call who'd like to ask a question? Fabian? Yeah. Uh, yeah, first, uh, thank you for this conversation. And uh, thank you, John, for putting all these resources on the internet, your meditation course, your meaning crisis series, and maybe if I, you put videos at the rate I can keep up with, but... Uh, <laughs> I'm nothing always... compared to all. Clay. you see how often he puts out a video oh my gosh like i can't keep up with him i can't even approximate it oh my yeah every day sometimes multiple a day yeah 
So my question is about uh, the role of uh, visualization in the ecology of practice, mm -hmm. uh, because I think that uh, visualization is something you, you use often as a cue uh, in movement practice. Yep. Uh, it is something that can be used in meditation, but, but you, you chose to uh, teach Vipassana uh, and not visualization meditation. Um, so the reason why I, so I, I, see, I see some um, bridge between movement practice and meditation using visualization. And another reason for uh, why I, I'm asking is that I think that actually meditation visualization is easier for a beginner than uh, focusing on breathing. Uh, it, it is. Um, and, sorry, and did I interrupt you? Go ahead. No, no, but uh, yeah, I'll finish. So uh, I just wanted to know what you think about uh, the, the role of right. visualization in physiology of practice. Well, so for me, visualization is important when it is a way of accessing, appreciating, accentuating the imaginal. Um, so I'm using Corban's distinction between the imaginary, which is just creating images, and the imaginal, which is something like, like we do now with virtual augmenta augmentation of reality. Uh, we, can use, we can use imagery, you know, like a, and that's what I was asking Rafe, to augment our ability to perceive. This comes out of cognitive science that you know, perception and imagination are just the, the bottom-up and top-down version of each other. That's what the predictive, you're, when you're looking at me right now, it is very true to say the following, you're as much seeing me as you're imagining me, and you're, much, you're as, as much imagining me as you're seeing me. So the imaginal tries to get an optimal grip on that. The problem we can do is we can try and make it just top down or bottom up, and then we get problems. The real reason I don't start with that for people is because our culture is awash in the imaginary and so it's very hard for people to appreciate images as the imaginal. They have been deeply trained and enculturated to grasping images as the imaginary and as escapist and as subjective and as leisure and as withdrawal and as the romantic as opposed to the realistic. And all of this, which is largely very bullshitty if you, if you want me to get into it. And so the pedagogical reason why I don't start with it is precisely because of the enculturation that surrounds imagery. When I, get, when I do this, if you see the course I did after, the Cultivation of Wisdom, the imaginal starts to take on a huge role because by the time people have gone through the meditation and contemplation course, they have enough of a taste for how they can be in their mind other than in an imaginary fashion, that they have the opening to realize the imaginal. That, that's at least my justification uh, for why I do it the way I do it. Thank you. Uh, so, and uh, uh, about the, the bridge that, that you can use between this uh, uh, the use of meditation, of visualization in meditation and in movement practice. Yeah. Uh, is it uh, something you're, you're looking for? Or? I do that all the time. Um, so for example, when you, like I said, if you go into, when you go into the, the cultivation of wisdom and we do the view from above, that's, 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 that uses visualization. You have to be careful though, you have to be careful to not over rely on it because 5% of the population cannot do mental 
visualization. And 10%, they do it very poorly. So if you try to make this like that everybody has to do it, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to, you're going to sort of really piss off or mislead a, a sizable chunk. Like, so if you have, you know, 10 people, you've got probably at least one or so that where the imagery stuff just doesn't work for them. Um, and so you have to, but that, but that doesn't mean you can't use the imaginal because look, there's a difference between picturing a sailboat in your mind. And then when it, like when, it, and this is my favorite example, when a kid, you know, ties their coat around them and picks up a stick and now, now they're Zorro and there's a cape and the sword. They're not forming a mental image there. And, and I mean this very carefully, they're acting out the imaginal and, and it's, it's getting them to see themselves in the world in a different way. So everybody can do the imaginal. Not everybody can do the imaginary, which is also another concern. So just to put that on the table, but I do use the imaginal repeatedly uh, and you have to you have to do it when I'm teaching Tai Chi Chuan. There, there, there's no other way. But that, that's like I actually train people. I actually teach them. I usually use this frame: imagination for the sake of perception, imagination for the sake of perception. Imagine that your arm is hollow and there's water flowing through it, right? Why? So that you can feel what the immovable arm feels like, and you can get a sense of it. Things like that. Same thing with uh, you know contemplative practices. Right. Like you, you, like like when you're trying to get people to do learned helplessness, not not learned helplessness, learned learned ignorance, learned helplessness. You wouldn't want to get anybody to learn to do that. Learned ignorance. Right. Like you, 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 you like I often like uh, you, you start with actual physical objects like, you know, uh, here's my here's my my frog that I carry around to remind me of ne my commitment to Neoplatonism. Right. And so, you know, put this in your hand or do you know it? Well, sure. Well, like, like, right, right, but like, are you actually seeing all of it? Well, actually, you never see all of it. But how, how do you have an awareness of all of it? What, what is that? And you, you get this is eidetic induction. And then, like, are you, are you actually, are you aware of its chemical makeup? And are you aware of its relativistic function? Like, no, right? And you, and, and like, and you get people to. Like this is the imaginal realization of not knowing. Everybody can propositionally assert, I, oh, I'm ignorant of a lot of things and I don't know. But you know what? We all pretend that we know what the object, what things are. We, I know what that is and I'm done. You wanna go back to phenomenologically opening that up and that requires extending people's awareness of their perception by using the imaginal. You can't perceive all of the frog. It's imaginal for you right here, right now. And notice how you're pretending that you can, like all of us, that you're seeing all of the frog, but you're not. Open up to that, realize it, become aware of it. That's, you have to use it all the time. But like I said, I don't start there because we are so enculturated for the image as the imaginary. Excellent. Thank you very much, Fabrizio. So um, I do, I'm going to, uh, Connor and Albert, I see you guys there. So I'd love to get to your questions, but I do want to go ahead and get Martin's question because it's fairly long. And I think I, I want to just um, make sure there's space for it. Um, so this is, I'd love to hear you guys discuss delusion, specifically knowing the knowing of being in delusion and how to prepare the ground for a safe landing when we step or jump away from our deluded self 
hopefully to a truer self. How can we be sure the ground is fertile and not hostile? There are times when awareness of a delusion can, have, can leave you empty, and this emptiness gets filled with the easiest available filler, drugs, alcohol, religion, podcasts, escapism, etc. How can we make sure this doesn't happen? If we use others to overcome this obstacle, how can we be sure we're not in an echo chamber? Members of a certain congregation will all be in accordance, making it appealing. If the delusion is longstanding, the jumping into the void can be too scary, so we stick with our known world and believe the truth to be a delusion. Parkour solves delusion by making you fail and fall over uh, to realize something. Rock climbers, fighters, and archers, etc., all have the same. But philosophers, sages, and gurus um, don't have this fail-safe system, or do they? So, I don't know. There's multiple questions in there. But uh, the topic of delusion, how we escape it and land safely without, well, avoiding the traps. Do you have a good answer to that? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I'll answer this question. There's perplexed the greatest minds, uh, <laughs> and I'll try and answer it in a couple of minutes. Well, let, let me let me try and take uh, somebody who, to my mind, has updated Plato and brought it into embodiment in a powerful way, which is Marlo Ponti. Now, Marlo Ponti, first of all, says we have to change our framing of illusion and delusion because we, it's always a comparative. It's not an absolute. We only judge one thing to be a delusion because we move to another thing, another perception, another realization that we consider more real. And so here's one of the things I want to ask you. How much time have you spent developing and understanding, making explicit and bringing into awareness that comparative tasting of realness? How much? I, I, I know how much we presuppose it, but how much has it been something that you spent time like when you when you have an insight or, or when you make a realization and, and before you get into like marco marcus aurelius don't try it with god try it with your cup right like when you when you just notice oh i was i i, I thought that was empty and it turned out to still have some water in it what happened there stop go back Bring mindfulness and genuine wonder to it. Open it up. What does that taste like in your mind and your body when that transition occurs? Spinoza said it, you know, the, the truth has no criteria other than itself, right? And what he partially meant is you, you, you can only realize it, and this is Marleau-Ponty's point, in these acts of comparison. But how... How good are you at doing that? What I mean by that is we all know what it is to develop a refined palate, you know, uh, to become a connoisseur in, in, in right? Not just of wine or food. You can become a connoisseur of art. You can become a connoisseur of music, right? And what you can do is, I'm, I'm saying comparatively, is you can come, become a connoisseur and develop a taste for realness. Is it infallible? No. Point to me of anything that we do infallibly. But if I cultivate this, do I get better at seeing when I might be in delusion? And then, so that's a bottom-up strategy. Do it, and then you do a top-down strategy. Learn about all the ways in which we deceive ourselves, the biases, both individual and collective. Learn about them, learn about them from the best science, and then learn to look for them. And you'll find that these two things support each other. That taste helps to bring that learning 
into a specific situation. And the learning helps to develop the connoisseurship of the taste. So for me, I, I, I can't give you a rule. I can't give you an algorithm. I can't give you a method. What I can do is recommend a way of training virtue and virtuosity that will enhance your ability to realize when you are not in touch with reality like you can be. Like, you, like this isn't, I'm sorry, I mean, this is challenging. It's challenging, but it's not mysterious. This is how you get better at a sport. This is how you get better at making love. Like, I, I, I hope none of this happened for you. You didn't go to the, this is how you make love. Here's the algorithms. And you were like, that's not what happened, right? You, you became a connoisseur of lovemaking and you, oh, that's what, oh, that, ooh, yeah. Oh, no, oh, yeah. And it, and it was, my, by the way, notice something that you could do that you learned in cooperation, in concert. And think about the metaphor, the richness of that metaphor. You learned in concert with other people. That's exactly what you can do. And, and I think there, this is one of the key things that all of the traditions are trying to get us to be better at, right? To fall in love and be connoisseurs of the taste for realness. This is, this is something that, uh, uh, like, and again, individually and collectively, always in sync with each other. Now, again, what, if you want from me a Cartesian certainty, which is yes, yes, but that could all still be an illusion. Yes, right? And maybe you've actually been mistaken all these years and nobody actually ever loved you. That's possible. I can't prove to you that you've been loved, but chances are you don't believe me when I tell you that, right? But you can't prove to me you've been loved either. What would you do to prove it to me? Instead, we have a different standard. We have this standard of the continuity of contact, of growth, of homing in, of attunement. You can do the same thing with your capacity to recognize, again, individually and dialogically, when you're in self-deception and comparatively when you have come out of it. That's my best answer. Love that. I think that was a great answer. Martin's not on the call. So um, he'll have to, to take to take it in uh, when he sees it. Uh, I guess uh, watch it on uh, on the replay. But um, it seemed very congruent with the conversation that we were having, and it also reminds me a little bit of the conversation you and I have been having with Jonathan Pajot. There's something about this idea of the real as the thing that's more realizable. It's like yes, yes. right, like a face in the sky doesn't have as many layers of realness as a human face does. It, it's not only more realizable, it, it, it realizes you more, right? Yeah. Those two, those two, and that's why it's, this is why love, and again, not the Hallmark card, not the emotional thing, not the romantic notion, but the platonic notion of love, right? Is so central to this because it's the degree to which Right, it's like what Wright talks about in sensibility transcendence, and I try to talk about with transframing. I'm not only reframing that; I, I, I'm also being reframed, and those are happening like this together in a reciprocal fashion. A fashion. That's what I try and get with the reciprocal opening. Right. 
Yeah, I love that idea. Okay. Um, Connor, did you have a question? Hi, Connor. Hey, John. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Um, so I had a few. One, it's just kind of timely because I was uh, getting back into it again. But I know you're at least somewhat familiar with the, the Center of Digital Life, like Mark Stallman's work. So I was following them again. And then they're trying to kind of get back to uh, uh, Aquinas' ecology of the inner senses as one method of, of addressing the meaning crisis. So I was curious how familiar were, you were with that in terms of like how it developed from Aristotle through Aquinas and Avicenna and whether there's any connection between um, like the cogitative power and relevance realization um, yeah. since Occam got rid of the cogitative and thought the intellect could perceive particulars directly. Um, and then also one of their mottos is that the, the digital paradigm drawing on Marshall McLuhan's work retrieves the medieval scribal paradigm, like the high point of it, um, because of the focus on memory rather than like you were saying before the imaginary as kind of the electric TV era focus. Um, but yeah, I'm really interested in uh, bringing their work and what you think of it in the ecology of the inner senses. Wow. Um, so quite the question, Connor. Um, I mean, there's there's some weird synchronicity. Uh, I'm going through a period right now where I'm getting a profound, well, to, for me, I'm not claiming everybody would find it profound, but for me, um, re, new re-understanding of Aquinas. Like many people, I was brought up to see Aquinas as an Aristotelian because he quotes Aristotle so much. You know who he actually quotes the most? Dionysus, the, mm. Neopl the Neoplatonist. There's a big move on by Morello and Clark and a bunch of others to, uh, and DC Schindler, this book, Love in the Postmodern Predicament, can't recommend it enough, right? To realizing how that actually Aquinas is uh, a, a Neoplatonist who uses Aristotle. The best analogy for Aquinas is not Aristotle, it's Plotinus. It's Plotinus. And so, that appreciate and and the, and 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 the census communis right is the fact that that degenerated into what we now call common sense is also just a, a, a you know a part of the whole degradation of our of our the vocabulary of our intelligibility yeah so more and more trying to understand our capacity for what Aquinas calls connaturality, connaturality. So sharing the same nature. What I what I what I often call conformity, but I'm kind I'm kind of coming to prefer Aquinas's term for it, right? And so there's a practice. It's used in the Eastern Orthodox tradition where the withdrawal of the senses. I'm getting to this point. You'll, you'll see. I withdraw the senses. So uh, you know, here's taste. I do this practice. Here's taste. Uh, here's touch. Here's sound, here's sight, here's smell. But what, what's, what's, what's in common to all of them? But, but not like what's average, but like what's the common source? What, do they, what are they all versions of, do you, do, right? And, and, and so you get this pure awareness of pure awareness. And then, but that's perceptual pure awareness. And then there's imaginal awareness and then there's conceptual awareness, like you're aware of infinity when I say the word infinite, but that doesn't mean you're imagining it or perceiving it, right? And then, so you get this awareness of all the awarenesses and you get this, right? And this is like the Aristotelian, right? Uh, census communis, right? And, and then this is, right? 
the proposal that this is the best vehicle for conformity that you see this in the the what is it oh keys of the master what's the name of the book by the, the eastern orthodox monk ah memory failing i just turned 60 last week and like everything's dying so um but right that that th this um that 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 multi-dimensional pure awareness of awareness is the best participation we have in the self-realization of reality this and this are co-participants in just like all the senses are participating from something the senses communis and the real like what nishitani talks about the the, the self-realization of reality they're both also participating in something that's the deepest kind of participatory knowing and that is at the core of aquinas we have to remember that he had a mystical experience and said burn all my books they're they're like straw compared to this right and um, thankfully they didn't do that because uh, none of us we would have all been much more so i think like you got it and i'm not saying you're not doing this i'm just this is general you've got to do the philosophical history you've got to really go back and unpack these terms and free them from what they've become in everyday language and also free them from the traditional aristotelian reading of aquinas and then you can if you get into the neoplatonic aspects the the practicality in the sense of i can practice it as a transformative practice that will be more much more disclosed to you at least that's what i'm finding in in my work right now did that did that address your question yeah some of it that's that's really interesting to hear um uh, I'm not sure how much more time we have, Ray, for if someone else had questions, I'd want to go over. Well, we're half an hour past the time that I asked John to stay. So um, <laughs> probably I have one more question and then, and then end, or, or John, do you need to go now? I can do one more question and then I should go, please. But okay. uh, uh, yeah, it, it's good to see you again, Connor. Yeah, you too. Hopefully you guys connected. Um, we had... Uh, Albert up on the stage. Did you want to uh, ask a question, Albert? Or I would love to talk to Albert if he's there. I would really love it. Now I'm I'm just I'm totally a voyeur today, um, but enjoying this immensely. Just Can I just immensely. say hi to you then? Can I just say huh? hi to you? Oh, I just wanted well, to John. say hi. To you. It's so good to see you again, Albert. It really is. It's very good to see you. But this this was just such an extraordinarily rich discussion. I. I it's just incredible the way that the two, you know, Rafe and John, how you can, you bridge these worlds that no, nobody would imagine. And you do, and it's like, it, it, it's almost effortless. Um, yeah, so just just thank you. Thank you very, very much for that. Really enjoyed it. Awesome. Well, thank, thank you, Albert. Albert. That means a lot coming from you, Albert. Thank you very much. <clears throat> okay. Joseph, Shannon, Kelsey, any of you guys want to offer a question? Well, maybe I could, I could go then because I, I'm kind of burning out. And, <laughs> and uh, um, I appreciate what you said, Albert, but it, 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 there, there's a sense in which you're right. It's with, it seems effortless, but it also takes a lot of effort. <laughs> 
it's, oh, it's pretty intense actually like i did a lot you know i do a lot of work to prepare for these uh, these conversations and then i feel pretty pretty fatigued afterwards so um, and i and I, I and i feel like i feel called to be very responsible and responsive to like these excellent questions that are being asked too uh, i'm very impressed i mean like rafe i'm just impressed by the the like the community that is is, is growing up around you i mean um i mean i know you one-on-one -on -one, and that's always led me to trust you very deeply um but, but also like i said i keep using you as an exemplary case and um uh, i'm hoping you, that you and i will get to work together on this project of trying to build up a network a community of these communities um yes. so just um, thank you very much again and yeah, thank you good. everyone thank you everybody for showing up on the call and supporting us and, and having these conversations and uh, we look forward to the next time we connect like this.